All right, everyone, we are back with episode 73, the continuation, the continuation of our deep dive. (laughs) (laughs) Continuation of our deep dive into driving to Damascus. This is going to be an extra long one, I can tell. And we're going to start up with a really happy, fun song, Fragile Thing. Yeehaw! thing now we we get to the next phase of the character and somebody else he's been laughing he's been uh trying to make the best of it and now he's been reduced to this this character a fragile thing <laughs> well you have a flair for the dramatics but, I like it. <laughs> but uh you know we've already gone over the fold stuff so we're not going to do that again we're just going to talk about the song this time and um what an interesting song this is uh, it's it's I think a gorgeous song and it all starts with, with the production. And I got to give Rafe McKenna a lot of props again on this production on this song, because it's so, it's so rich and it's got so many wonderful textures from acoustic guitars to slide guitars, to electric guitars, to even some little piano flourishes that really work beautifully in this song because they're so subtle and they kind of drift in and out as the song goes from verse to verse and it works wonderfully. And then of course we have the whole Eddie Reader thing and I had no idea who Eddie Reader was when this album came out and when the talk about Eddie Reader being on the album um, started happening and I had no idea who she was but the pairing of female voices with Big Country is a tradition that started on the first album and um, with uh, Christine Beveridge, I believe it was, on The Storm. You know, beautiful, beautiful uh, contrast of a, a really lovely female voice mixed with Stewart's kind of um, Scottish Springsteen-esque type of vocal delivery, at least back then. Uh, but yeah, Eddie Reader on this was a really... It just inspired touch. It really takes the song to an even higher level of what's already a very good level. Again, I talked about Perfect World being a good example of how big country could preserve being big country, but still change and evolve. And this is another example of that. Um, this is a great example of how Stewart could show his burgeoning country Nashville interests and still make us write a song that sounds like a big country song because I think this sounds like a big country song, even though we've got a lot of new sounds for big country and a, a new sort of uh, approach to it, the song musically. And really, when you think about it, you know, a lot of people talk about the country influence Stuart was having and want to run to the hills, but really, country music at its at its roots 
is not that far removed from Celtic music and from folk music. And it, it really isn't. I mean, you've got like homogenized, um, sanitized versions of, of that kind of music that would be played or that would be used to write songs that would be radio friendly and that kind of thing. And that's a, that's a different animal altogether. But when you're talking about roots type of country music, it's not like it's completely removed from from Celtic music and folk music. And Stewart always said, even from the first album, that he wanted to write folk music with loud guitars. So folk music was always something that he was into and interested in. And he used to talk about his mom playing Patsy Cline records and, and those types of things. So even though he he went in a lot of new directions that maybe some fans didn't like or weren't expecting, it wasn't such a sudden change as one might expect. Um, because it was always a part of his life and his listening experiences. And let's let's not um, shortchange Bruce Watson either, because this is an Adamson-Watson collaboration, and uh, I'm not sure who wrote what, but I'm assuming that Bruce probably wrote a good deal of the music, and uh, Stewart, I would imagine, wrote all the lyrics. But uh, So a lot of this music, I, I would believe, came from Bruce. That combination with these sort of production elements that that come into the song really it just makes for a great moment on the album. Maybe the album's pinnacle moment, even though I did not rate this as my top rated song. We know that already. I think in a lot of ways, this is the pinnacle of the album in terms of just craft and in terms of just the scope of what they were trying to achieve and just, just the, the beauty of the production and the heartfelt um, lyrics and that kind of thing. It's just got a really haunting quality. Um, Great bass playing from Tony, great drums from Mark, and and again, it's a different style from Mark too because he's playing with brushes on this song, and I don't know if he's really done that much um, in past big country songs. Certainly not throughout an entire song, I think, like he does on this one. It really clues you in on the flexibility uh, and the range of Mark Brzezicki's drumming that he can just fit right into a song like this so perfectly and beautifully, and add all those advanced things that he does, but in a in kind of a laid back way with these brushes and, and these brush strokes and both literal and metaphorical when it comes to his artistry as a drummer. So I think this song is, is a tour de force of production. I think it's just absolutely gorgeous. And the first thing I think that really works so well is that haunting slide part that comes in at the very beginning. Some people would say that sounds like someone crying or someone uh, wailing. And I can see why you would think that, but for me, it, it it almost seems like someone just sort of letting out some sort of deep, sad, guttural sigh. I remember speaking with someone shortly after uh, Stuart passed away, and this person lived in Nashville, and they were in contact with Stuart a lot. And this person mentioned to me, and I'll never forget it, they said uh, that when they were around Stuart, he would often just let out these deep sighs like out of nowhere he would just be sitting there and then he would just like let out this really deep long sigh and they that struck that person and um that that kind of hit me immediately and just struck me as being kind of a haunting thing to think of and and that's kind of how i take that slide guitar in the beginning of this song it almost it, it just sort of speaks to not someone who's crying or weeping because they're sort of beyond that but they're just at this wrecked place in their life and I have just, it in my notes as a mournful sound. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a, it is a very mournful sound, and it's it's like a 
it's hard to talk about how this works so beautifully, quote unquote, in a song that clearly has a lot of personal relevance to what Stuart was going through and what ultimately ended his life. You know, I don't, you don't want to ever separate those two things, but it really does work from a musical standpoint um, incredibly well to start the song with that and just lead into those beautiful um, guitar sounds. So musically, I think it's, it's just fantastic. And then we get to the lyrics and there is a really interesting video for this song that was done in Nashville. It starts out with Stuart, the protagonist of the song being in a diner and he's speaking to the waitress who actually turned out to be his, his wife. I don't know if they were married at the time. I think they were his second wife. They were not. They were not. Okay. They got married early two thousand. Gotcha. All right. So they were still they were still uh, in the courting phase, I guess, as we would say. But anyway, that was his his soon to be wife who played the waitress in that video. But th- this is where the song kind of works and and kind of has a couple problems for me lyrically, and and I'm, I might you know say a few things that are that are meant to be funny in this, and when I. I just want to preface that by saying I'm not trying to make light in any way of the song because I the song is is such a big point of this album and and speaks to so much. So I'm not trying to make light of it, but it, but there are some things that I just I have to chuckle a little bit about. First of all, we we have him saying, "Thank you, ma'am, for asking." Yes, I'm on my own. So so the waitress I'm assuming has come up to him and she's noticed this forlorn-looking guy sitting at the table, sitting there eating his his food. And she's maybe going to give him his check or seeing how his meal is going. And I just imagine her saying, oh, how you doing? Are you, are you by yourself today? And he says, yeah, thanks for asking. Yes, I'm on my own. And suddenly he starts launching into his entire life story. <laughs> and I've always taken this as like the waitress is kind of like um, looking at this person. And, you know, if you ever talk to someone um, or you ever strike up a conversation with someone and then suddenly you, you sort of do it out, out of politeness and then suddenly you realize, oh man, I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> she's, she, she's going, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> it's like I get the feeling she's slowly backing away. Like, okay, I got some customers I need to take care of. You know, she's getting to that point by the second verse of the song. I'll bring you a fresh pot of coffee. <laughs> That's right. You want some Joe? Coming right up. <laughs> but it's like that's that's the one thing that I that I think to me takes away a little bit from the from the heaviness of the song. Um I, I I would almost I know what Stuart's trying to do and I think it's smart. You know, he's trying to set up this conversation in this diner and create this atmosphere that really existed for him in Nashville and it, it it's very much a uh, a Nashville type of scene where you're hey, thank you ma'am and you, you know the waitress, the country waitress coming to serve you and you're you're talking to them. And I understand why he's doing that, and it's a good storytelling device for a song. But when you look at it from more of a realistic standpoint, it kind of takes away from a little bit from the sympathy of the guy for a little while, at least to me, because he's he's like just he's he's starting to spout off everything, every detail about his life to this woman. And there are other parts in this song where it's more of a an internal dialogue that Stuart is having with himself, or the character is having with himself. In those moments, I think the lyrics work much much better than when he's talking to the waitress because I, because he's just so forthcoming immediately. But then we've got this interesting second verse. I've been to see a movie about a man who saved the world at the same old happy ending where the hero gets the girl and all I ever 
And so once again, we've got a character in one of these songs who's who's clinging to things that aren't real, who's who's clinging to things that are unattainable. I mean, I, I get the feeling in this song that the guy who's singing has become, by the end of the song, it seems like he's become homeless. I always imagine him as being someone who's perhaps had, and I'm not saying this just because of, of Stewart's situation, but it, it just struck me as someone who maybe had problems with alcohol or something along those lines, and he's become like this this vagabond out on the road. And that's kind of how I took this character, even before all the stuff happened with Stuart, I kind of thought of it that way, because it's such a, he, he's in such a wrecked place. And usually you only get to that kind of place when you, when you have those types of issues along with um, a breakup. But, but, but we, we get this sense of this guy going to the movies by himself and he's seeing maybe some big science fiction movie where someone saves the world and he wants to be that. And he wishes he could be that. And he thinks if I could just be that, I could have this woman back. And he's totally missing the point that to to have a successful relationship doesn't take these great, gigantic um, leaps and bounds of superhero abilities. It takes every day working at things and getting in the dirt and grime of a relationship to constantly make it work. And I think that's a telling line there where, where he he doesn't say, you know, if only I would have... I could stop drinking or if only I could have been a better um, husband or boyfriend or whatever, or if only I could have listened to her or done this, I could have salvaged this relationship. He says, if only I could have been the man who saved the world, which is impossible. And that kind of takes us back to the perfect world thing and all that. So I just think that's an interesting thread that seems to go through a lot of these songs. But then this other line again makes me laugh because it's such a it's just a backhanded comment to this waitress and he says all i ever wanted was to be that hero too then i might still be with her instead of here with you (laughs) so it's like (laughs) you got to think of this this poor woman who's listening to all of this and he's like uh yeah then i could still be with her instead of here with you and that that's a great thing to say to the woman um so at this point she really wants to take off uh I would imagine. But um, then we get into the parts of the song that really are, you know, undeniably powerful. And I, I think th- this chorus is so powerful. It's It's got everything you would want in a chorus, especially in a big country chorus. It, you expect lines lyrically of intelligence and intensity because Stewart set that bar long ago. And, and he really brings it back in this song. And what's so great about this song's chorus is that it's so simple, and yet it is so powerful. Love is a small fragile thing. I spend a lot of cold nights missing you. Keep it in your hands, oh, let it take wing. I spend a lot I mean, so simple, but really so powerful. And when you pair it with those, with the production and the and the haunting nature of the music, it's it's really a very very powerful chorus. What's interesting is that the single version of this chorus. And of this song, I had a, had a couple of changes. For one thing, that, that whole verse about been to see a movie um, was removed completely from the single version. It wasn't in there at all. It just went right from the first verse into the first chorus. 
Um, and also in that first chorus on the single version, they completely take Stewart's voice out of the mix, and it's just Eddie Reader singing. that interesting but i i still i prefer eddie being more of a background vocalist in this song um rather than because when you bring her in as the main voice i kind of get what they're trying to do and, and you see this in the video as well where they're where they're, they have eddie reader doing these bizarre belly dances and some belly shirt which i don't think fits the song at all but she seems to obviously be in a, a faraway location in a different part of the world and she's standing by a lighthouse at one point and it's like she's waiting for her man to come to his senses, perhaps, or maybe it is unsalvageable at this point. But I think, <laughs> yeah, well, she is. She's like she's doing these weird gyrations and like, what are you doing? This does not fit the song at all. Oh my sir, I'm sorry. I was trying to. I, I couldn't keep it. In. That's all right. That's <laughs> that was just right. ridiculous. <laughs> I know. It That's... was fun. Good stuff. <laughs> I, but but I think we said that when we dissected this video in the top ten video countdown that she did. She does this weird stretching exercises. Is what I see it as. Just stretching her hands up to the sky and exactly yeah. and rolling around and like yeah, it, it's just, it doesn't fit the video really. It, it I doesn't. Mean, it, she, she doesn't need to be the same location. But that was that was just. You got five minutes, okay, step outside and stretch. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, it, it does, having her come out to the forefront like that does kind of give another element to the song. It makes it seem like she is dealing with some regret as well. And, and 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 you get that as well in the song just by the fact that she has a voice in the song and is, and is singing along with it. But when you when you make her the solo voice in the track like they do in the single version, it gives her almost a bigger role, but... Yeah. I, I sort of – this is just my interpretation, my, open to anyone's interpretation. But again, I kind of look at it as she's someone who has given this guy many, many opportunities. She still loves him, but she cannot live with him. She realizes that she cannot live with him because of his demons or whatever they are. And sometimes you, people get to that point where they just have to let someone go because that person is dragging them down as well. And it's kind of that whole dr uh, drowning metaphor that we talked about. And that's kind of how yeah. I always took this song. Like, this guy is just, he's too far gone. And that's kind of why I, I read into it with the alcohol abuse or whatever. But it, it, it is a beautiful chorus. And after that first chorus and maybe a second chorus, we get to, he's finally leaving the lady. He's finally leaving the waitress. Thank you for your time. I'm going to go and walk. And uh, he says, I might as well do that because I'm running out of talk. And she's probably saying, oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm so glad. Please go. But then when he when he talks about, you know, I could walk a thousand miles tonight and never find my place, at least until it gets too late to hide my tearful face. Um, he, he's starting to internalize now. He's starting to come back into an, more of like an inner monologue with himself. And I think that's, again, where the song becomes more powerful. And I, I wish he could have found a way where he could have had the entire song be in more of an inner monologue rather than him talking to this waitress for, for three quarters of the song. Yeah. But then you get to that really awesome, powerful last verse where he says, There's a low belly on the highway Brief faces in the light I 
Watch them for a second Heading somewhere in the night And we have no connection But the darkness and the road I better find a place tonight I better call it home A low ballet on the highway And what a beautiful line that is uh, I've never heard that phrase before, low ballet but it's, it's beautiful. Um, and he talks about these brief faces in the light. And you get, he really paints that picture so wonderfully where like a, a car drives by. And, th- and this, again, starts to clue you into like this guy has no home. He's, he's got no place to go to. But this car drives by him. And just for that second, a light flickers and he can see someone in the car. And I've often had this feeling where, you know, you, you see someone for just a minute and you just kind of think, Man, I wonder what their life is like. You know, I never see that person ever again after this moment. They'll be gone forever, and they've got an entire life that they're leading, and I have no clue what it is. And it just you, you kind of get lost in these sort of thoughts, and you realize that everyone is is you know dealing with their own struggles and their own issues, and you may not ever be aware of them. But this person, the only thing they share, according to this guy, is the darkness and the road. And again, just a great line, great, great line. And then he says, "I better find a place tonight. I better call it home." So there, there you go. He's he's homeless. He's got no place to go. He's out on the road, walking around, wandering around, scrounging up enough money to go into a diner and eat. I guess, I guess to go to a movie too. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's got, he found enough money to go to the movies. But uh, yeah, and and I've you know I've been making light of some of this. And like I said when I prefaced this, I don't mean to make light of the song because. This is a huge song for Stewart, and when you when you watch the video, it's so tough to watch because you've got the guy in a hotel in Nashville, laying on a bed, forlorn, with his bare feet. He's got a guitar sitting next to him, and when you think about what happened with Stewart in the last days of his life, I mean, there was a period where they were all looking for him, and he was hiding out in a hotel in Nashville. I mean, when you see that shot of him laying there in the bed, knowing everything that happened— you immediately have to think, holy crap, that's probably exactly, almost exactly what it was like for the for the guy, you know, sitting there in this bed, in this hotel, thinking about everything that he feels like he's lost and feeling completely hopeless. And there's his guitar sitting next to him. And yeah, you know, it's, it's just devastating to think about. So it's close to home. Yeah, it really does. So anyway, I think this is just a great song. It's a classic big country song. Um, it's you know, we talked about the single and, and what it should have done, et cetera. It does still anger me, though, that um, I'm not talking about the folds thing here, but just like it's another example of a big country single that had to be chopped up. And I wish that they could have figured out a way to, you know, come up with a I don't come up with a song that did not have to be edited, because I do think the edits that were made to this song for the single version affected the song and and I don't want to hear the single version. I if I want to hear the song, I'm going to listen to the album version. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I wish that it would it seems it seems like every big country single has been poorly edited out of necessity for length. And um I think it's a shame. Now, would that have affected this this song if it had, you know, not had the folds? Who knows. Um I don't think any any casual listener would have known or noticed or cared. They would have still loved the song. Um but as I said, I think, you know, this comes in about exactly halfway through the album. And I do think it's like it's the it's the crux around which this album, the cornerstone, if you will, around which this album is built. I mean, I know Driving to Damascus is uh, the the title track, but I think from a from a point of view of 
songwriting craft, from what they were trying to do musically, um, thematically for the album. I think this is what the album centers around. And it's interesting that we've got such a big, the album starts out with a big vision of love, love them all, you know, with this Christ-like figure who's got this big message of love for the guy. And love is portrayed as this giant thing that can envelop everyone. And now we've come to the point in the album where we've got love as a very small and fr- very fragile thing. So it's it's like, not that this is a concept album and we're following a storyline, but it is interesting how we've gone from that point to this point. And I think, um, you know, it, it gets darker still at times on this album. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a great moment. It's a great achievement for the band, uh, this song. And... Um, you know, it's it's a song they should very rightfully be very proud of, and I think it's uh, it should it should always stand as a as a really great example of what they could have continued to accomplish had they kept going and kept going down this road a little bit. They could have they could have really this proves that they could have really enveloped or brought in some of these Nashville influences without abandoning what was great about Big Country, and it could have been really interesting to uh, to hear, but. Um, as it stands on its own, great track. Definitely, and it's one that the, the, all of the band could get behind. I, I get the sense that everybody was really excited about this song. And it's a good example of a song where Stuart didn't go to Nashville, but he went enough to satisfy himself, but not so far that he alienated the others. So I think this is a great, great compromise between them. There are so many things to say about this song. I mean, we have the song itself, which is brilliant. We have the fact that we um, it was picked as a single. We have Eddie Reader guesting on vocals. We have the drama of the single packaging. See how I didn't say folds. See how I said it there anyway. And and we ha- j- just the entire album campaign and um, how that ended badly and possibly escalated a downward spiral for Stuart. So many things were done right when it came to this song, but sadly so many things went wrong. But we already talked about most of the wrong things. And now we can talk about the things that went right, which were mostly the creative things. And I mean the writing, the performance, the production, a lot of great things to talk about with this song. And uh, I'll start with um, Eddie Reader, which... uh, we could have talked about her in the context of See You, but it's much more fun to talk about her in the context of this song. So um, I, the, the first memory I have, and this goes back to something you said from uh, the plans to bring her on board, I still remember Ian Grant's announcement on the bulletin board. The plans for the album, the members paying site where he shared intimate details that we had to keep secret, uh, about the production of this album. And one day he came with the news that he was going to get, quote-unquote, someone famous to do it with Stuart on the album, and possibly the single. And uh, I, I distinctly remember he saying stuff like, it needs to be someone big. We're going to get a name person that can <laughs> uh, help bring some attention to the new big country single. See, I don't think I was a member of that, a paying member, so I didn't, I wasn't privy to that information. Yeah, so you missed both the information and the abuse. I Because did. he would get uh, quite annoyed when people took news he posted on the members' site and posted it elsewhere. And then oh, said, if you keep, oh, really? If you keep doing that, no more news. And, <laughs> and that was just a big thing. We can talk about that in a lighter context. But uh, this was some of the news that appeared on the membership site. And uh, I thought, okay, someone big, fine. They did it before. They did it with Kate. 
So if they did Kate back then and did nothing with it, who could they possibly get this time? And um, then came the big Eddie who? <laughs> but like, I had no idea who Eddie Reader was. Uh, I I didn't know about Fairground Attraction, which was her previous band, and I didn't know about her solo career. I knew nothing. So the initial reaction was, is this the clout that Ian Grant commands? Hmm. Interesting. But uh, the uh, the English fans knew who she were. So obviously this was, you know, if you were not British, you know, I say English, but uh, she is Scottish, so British fans knew. And um, we, the rest of us found out. And I don't think, um, I don't know what clout she has on the British Isles. I can't really speak to that. But, uh, uh, you know, I think certainly in my case, and most international big country fans, Big Country ended up helping Eddie Reader a whole lot more than Eddie helped Big Country. Uh, hopefully they got some more attraction from that uh, in, in Britain. Uh, so um, it's kind of interesting how she was uh, suggested to the band. And I have a written quote from a radio interview. Sadly, I don't have the actual audio, so we could have played that. But she spoke a little bit about it. And uh, I'll read that section for you now. She says... I was living in London, and I got a call about working with the band, and Stuart came round to my house for a chat. I remember him sitting in my kitchen, and he just started talking to me about how he wanted to work with me, and I was very flattered. He seemed to have a real fondness for singer-songwriters, such as Grant Parsons, and for the work he had been doing in Nashville. He was explaining that it changed his life in a way. He was totally joyous and seemed very happy with, with where he was at. And he explained that he would like to do it with me on this track, Fragile Think. And when I heard it, I thought it was wonderful. Then when it came to rehearsal, the loud guitars came out and I couldn't hear a thing. Boys are like that, you know. It was then I noticed the boys in Big Country wanted to make a big racket. Some girls do too. But it had been years since I played with that kind of volume. Then at the end of the rehearsal, it was really exhilarating. And I just stopped and looked at them. And they went... That was great, Eddie. And I was, right, okay, I'll take your word for it. I couldn't hear a thing. So <laughs> I'm not sure that really explains who made the connection. Clearly, it was Ian Grant. But uh, they um, they got together. They, uh, they worked out the song between themselves, how to sing it, and she went down and recorded it. And I, um, I might have had some doubts about this so-called Eddie Who, when I first heard about her. To me, it was totally a known quantity, but uh, I really think she did a great job. And um, I don't know how much attention she gave the band at the end of the day, but she really did the job for the song. And in terms of making a beautiful duet, that really should be enough. It doesn't need to be a name as far as I'm concerned. But uh, in any case, she was quite involved in not just doing the song, but she even helped doing PR for the album. She appeared with Stuart on radio shows, and she was quite invested, and that impressed me. She, she, I really call that above and beyond any sort of guest uh, star on an album. So that, that, that uh, gave her a lot of respect in my book, that she really went out and did heavy work to promote the thing. Well, Eddie, you, you were saying you were working, or Billy was saying you were working with them out there in uh, in Nashville. What do you remember those sessions? Oh, no, they, we did it. We did it at home. He, um, well, here, you know, not not in Nashville. I think he'd come over. I got a call, and there was this lovely wee song that they had called "Fragile Thing," 
um, which is a very gentle song, because when someone said Big Country, I was kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, is that not lots of loud guitars and big, beautiful anthem-type stuff that I wouldn't... Nobody's going to hear me, I've got this wee voice. And then they played me this demo, and it was so lovely. It was just really gentle, and I think he must have been influenced by by working in Nashville or something, because it sounded so... Um, well, like you know, lots of there was a. I think there was a steel in it. I don't know. Tony right. will tell you more. But there was. It was just. Uh, there was sort of. A, it was a totally different thing from what I'd imagined. And then, of course, you know, uh, they took me down to where they were rehearsing, which is just off the M25. And and we all. I, I brought my son and his pal down after school, and they set up. They had all the Marshall amps set up, and they played some really brilliant loud music. And the Waynes were loving it. It was great. Fragile thing was demoed on the fourth Drive to Damascus demo session at House in the Wood Studios in August 98, like so many others that we recently talked about. And uh, musically and lyrically, it's really an exceptional track. And um, I mentioned, I think, on a previous episode that I don't remember exactly how I felt about it. I don't remember listening to it for the first time and how I felt then. And that annoys me a bit now. Because I didn't have the experience you did with the, the bum speakers that kind of cemented that, <laughs> that experience for you. But uh, I know I got the singles first. And maybe that's part of it. Because I also know at that point I would always read other people's opinions on stuff before I had a chance to make up my own. And, and that was exciting to read what others thought. But it was also a bit annoying. And even to this day, I think most people who listen to this thing regularly knows that I don't want to listen to stuff before I have it in the house and can put on a CD and listen to it the old-fashioned way. On my own, just taking the album, look at the liner notes, look at the sleeve, just old school. And uh, I think that opinion kind of cemented itself from those early internet days where I would get someone's early impressions and I would always remember those quotes and I still do for a lot of other singles and albums and stuff. And no, I don't agree with this guy at all. How could he say that? And it, it ends up, you know, it sets a certain expectation and I, I'm not as open as I, I would be. And I think that was the case a bit for Fragile Thing. But I don't remember exactly how or why. But uh, for this song, though, I, I wish I could speak to myself just a week into living with this song and get my opinion of it then because this is perhaps not an immediate song. It shows a very emotional side that they didn't often have to this extent, I mean, they had plenty of emotion, but uh, this is borderline vulnerable and naked, and also with a bit of Americana thrown in stylistically, so it had new elements as well. So from that regard, it's a really brave choice as an opening single, but on another level, it's really making sense as a quality song, so I'm sure I liked it when I heard it. I'm also sure I wondered about what this track would mean as far as the overall direction of an album. That's always something that, that I keep in mind. But we did have the Lemon Tree live songs at this point. so They were very reassuring. Uh, I did have a live review as far as I remember, written by some Yankee who taped a show in Nashville. And so so I felt quite good about, the, about uh, just how it all would feel. And also with B-sides like Lucerne and Dust on the Road, was quite optimistic we were going to get a diverse and solid album and this song definitely contributed to that so um yeah this song genuine quality i, I don't know quite where to begin there's so many nice touches on it uh, really it's a kind of ballad and the guitar in the intro to start there just the same ones you mentioned um 
I, I just find it so wonderful. You know, I um, I have it down as not a crying guitar, like on the Buffalo Skinner song. That is a crying guitar line. This is more quiet, weeping, and mournful. Uh, so atmospheric against the music. And it's just the kind of sound I imagine could come from the open prairies at night. Some sad coyote or whatever, just from out there, you hear this sound in the night appearing. <laughs> because this is a night song to me. It is a song that is partially also set in the night. So, and, and it just has that feel. Uh, and you mentioned Mark's uh, drumming and the, the fact he plays on wisps. And uh, he could have settled for some quiet underpinning. But instead, it builds a quiet sense of urgency. The drum pattern is really quite busy. And it's busy with, uh, with a lot of things going on, really. But it does fit. It doesn't ruin the mood of melancholic contemplation. No, it really it doesn't. Just, uh, no, it doesn't. It, the song itself, it really is a quiet ballad. And with the busiest drum track, but it fits. Because there's also a kind of dramatic backdrop to what is happening now. And you feel like, you know, perhaps this is his last pit stop on the road to hell. Who knows? <laughs> You're not, you, can, you can read it any way you like. And that urgency in the drumming helps build that sense of, of dramatics. And if he had gone for may, maybe a more laid-back drum track, that wouldn't be there. And you'd have just the melancholy. So, yeah, it works beautifully, wonderfully. They also do a wonderful thing after the first verse where instead of going straight into the chorus, which lazier songwriters would do, the song goes into that middle part with the first guitar break, and that is a great guitar line. Again, it's totally fitting the song, the atmosphere. And then after that line, they go back into the second verse again, which now has more musical flourishes, like a little more backing vocals and that piano that you mentioned. And it's an excellent way to both build the song and get deeper into the story of the song, which is honestly quite uh, gripping. Yeah, and that's another reason why that single version stinks, because it, or at least that's a bad, you know, edit, because it really does take away from that build. And that build is important. Yeah, just like I mentioned, lazier songwriters would go straight into the chorus. What yeah. does the single do? Yeah, exactly. Straight into the chorus. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean, the album track is four and a half minutes long. Right. And and you can have that debate, what is too long for a single? Big Country has released, how long was the single edit of Hold the Heart? It was longer than four and a half minutes, but the album version of that is nearly six minutes. So they, so they still did significant edits. It still makes me laugh. Yeah, four and a half minutes i mean it's again i don't know the rules i don't know how long the radios want a single to be it's uh, does it matter it's, it's just uh, that corporate pollution of art <laughs> if i can put my hippie hat on for a minute which i'm not a hippie and i don't like hippies but um yeah and i mentioned the pianos uh you mentioned them too uh they resist the temptation in the song to uh, to drape the song in piano they don't do that or keyboards. There's just minimal piano flourishes that fit well. So, uh, whereas they went totally overboard with strings in CU, and I hate going back to that all the time, but it's like they, they knew when to keep it back, and they knew when enough was enough, but in that song, it was just too... You know, they, uh, Who played they those pianos, by the way? Who played those pianos? Because now we don't know anymore. 
we don't know anymore. And I guess this is the time to bring that up because I, I mentioned that Josh Phillips played keyboards on this album in uh, in episode 71. And Bruce was quick to say, Josh Phillips doesn't play on this album. And if Bruce says that, then obviously that is correct. But I will point out that Josh Phillips is in the album credits as keyboards. So that is a very honest mistake to make. And that um, the, the question then becomes... Why is Josh Phillips appearing in the album credits? Yeah, and you, so we know that track records, if, if it's printed in a track records uh, production, you've got to believe it's true. <laughs> They're well known for their typos, but this is downright misinformation. <laughs> That's true. So it's, uh, I don't know. Maybe they used uh, a loop or a tape or something he played back in the day. I don't know. That's enough to give someone a credit, but I'm not going to speculate. Obviously, if Bruce says Josh wasn't there, then he wasn't there. But there is a credit, so it makes sense of it someone. Maybe someday we'll get an answer. But uh, yeah, so we don't know who's playing the piano on this song. And uh, I don't know if, uh, if uh, producer Rafe McKenna is a piano player or if he did a Peter Wolf and inserted himself in the proceedings. But certainly there's no other keyboard credit in the liner notes. So if it isn't just, then it's an uncredited piano player. So, um, yeah, Peter test will. Uh, I already mentioned Eddie Reader. And um, I also mentioned, I believe, that I am a sucker for harmony vocals. And I think they work really well on this song. Uh, Eddie's vocals are soft, emotional, um, just really nice. But yeah. more than that, she just sings a lovely harmony vocal really well. And she does, you know, more than the harmony vocal, she does a lot of that wailing in the background, which starts slowly. It adds to the atmosphere along with that, uh, the mournful guitar that we mentioned. So she, she adds some quiet uh, sort of wailing. It, it sounds, <laughs> I don't have a good word for it. Wailing sounds Yoko Ono-ish. <laughs> It doesn't go too far. It doesn't. It doesn't overstep the bounds, and it could, but it doesn't. She's she does just enough. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't overstep its bounds, and it, it grows a bit in intensity as the song draws to its end as well. So it, it's effective. It adds a lot. So, so just overall, the music is incredibly moving and very melancholic. Melancholic and tinged with both sadness and beauty, I think. So with music like that, the lyrics are set up to deliver the punchline. And the lyrics, um, yeah, what to say. The, the song pretty much paints the picture I have from the video, which is, uh, like yourself said, the guy sitting at the diner, which is more or less clear from the lyrics and the, the video follows that quite closely so the guy sitting there at the diner or cafe or some uh, low-end eating establishment all alone he's clearly not sitting at a five-star michelin restaurant uh, but it's he's sitting there it's late like i said I, I have a feeling this is evening and then he goes out into the night when it's over so definite night feel to this song and obviously as as the lyrics kick in like like you said the 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 serving lady has uh, done a mistake and approached this guy with a very friendly, Hey there, sweetie pie. You're eating all alone here tonight, sugar. And uh, the first verse is the response. But I'm also thinking, you know, I never quite took it the way you presented it. And I'm wondering why, because it's the natural way to, to take it. 
And uh, I'm kind of thinking his, you know, he could just as well be thinking this, or I don't take it as face value as things he's actually saying as a rambling thing. Perhaps there's a conversation and perhaps these things are getting out in conversation form, whereas here we get them in lyric form. So I never quite took it that literal, but it's, uh, it is very funny when you think of it that way. Um, but uh, the, the, the lyrics, they're kind of, they're very sweet. They're very poetic in a way, but they're also reasonably straightforward that, yeah, it's obvious I'm here alone. You know, yeah, thanks for asking if I'm eating alone. It's obvious. Um, but at the same time, grateful to be asked. Um, tired of talking to myself, which indicates he's been on his own a little bit more than just recently. You know, he's been in his own company a little bit. And there's a sadness that's hiding behind the eyes and maybe something darker too. So um, the, the thing about the, the movie and wanting to be the hero who saved the world, uh, that's the ideal again. And you mentioned this. And I think back to songs like uh, Wildland in, in My Heart, and uh, all the heroes he saw on TV in his youth and how much he wanted to be like them and how much he wanted to follow them. And here again, we have the guy who no longer has really the hope of, of becoming like that, but he's still saying, you know, that's all he ever wanted was to be that hero. So that is kind of a throwback that is a little, um, one of those things that actually chokes me up a little bit because it's a red thread from the hopeful kid who saw and loved those movies and so looked up to these heroes and then um, ending up here in this diner, sort of with broken illusions and, uh, and everything. And that's a bit where the song is coming from. There's a lot of heartbreak in the song. And that's the line where that first makes itself apparent to me in the edited out second verse of the single version of the song. So th that whole thing about the, the hero getting the girl, it's, it's kind of crucial to the song really because that's where he that's where you see the line in his authorship and perhaps that makes the song all that more personal uh, and uh, yeah then I might be with her instead of here with you that's <laughs> unsure how to take that myself that is a backhanded <laughs> compliment uh, there's no denying it but also um, of course he'd rather be with her Instead of anywhere, really, I happen to be here with you. So that's the current comparison. Well, it's not uh, so bad if you if you look at it the way you mentioned, where maybe he's just imagining that he's talking to this woman, you know, or maybe yeah. she, maybe she made the initial comment, and then the rest he just kind of made a comment back, and then the rest he just thought about to himself. So yeah, if you think of it that way, then it's not so it's not so diff bad or difficult. Yeah, or it's a mixture of thoughts that some might come out one way, some might come the other way. And he might say, yeah, I want to see a movie. And then, obviously, I wanted to be that hero too, to get the girl. It's not something you say in a normal conversation. At least not like that. <laughs> Who knows what state he's in? That that might have been a step up. We don't know. But uh, I, you know, about being here with you, that that's just happened to be where he is right now. Was when it's in yeah, the hotel room, yeah, I might be with her instead of here in this goddamn hotel room. So that's just, I don't think it's meant that badly. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's its a guy who is clearly has lost someone. And you hear that more in the, in the chorus where he speaks about, first, I might still be with her instead of here. 
and the with you is less important really. And then loves small fragile things, spent a long lot of cold nights missing you. This is not a recent breakup. And that's what I sort of got from the verse already. And in the chorus, it's kind of nailed there. Spent a lot of cold nights missing you. And that might have been a recurring thing. Like over his life, he's missed her a lot. And maybe he was thrown out that same day and now there's another night. It's not like a string of nights in a long sort of chain that belongs together. But that's how it strikes me. And especially compared with the uh, tired of talking to myself uh, line and those things. It's been ongoing for a while. So, yeah, it's... Uh, and and it's... Uh, I look at the words, and especially the title of the song. Sometimes a title of a song can be rather throwaway, shall we say. But Fragile Thing is, um, in its own right, just a very curious title. And then you look at the full line, Love is a Small and Fragile Thing. And he's, uh, he's come back to this notion throughout this sort of writing career that love is a very uh, special thing and he's always looking for it. And he's always looking for the ideal love and the ideal partner and the one in a million girl and uh, the perfect girl in a perfect world. You see a lot of really high ideals for it. Uh, and here he's kind of turned it around that, you know, actually it isn't perfect. It is a very small and fragile thing. And it's a deep realization that I think the person in this song has sort of learned the hard way. That uh, it needs to be tender to it. Just like a, a flame, you know, you you light a match. That flame can go out so easily. You need to tend to it. You need to protect it and care it and make sure it grows. And uh, in this case, that didn't happen. And it looks like it was all but, you know, burnt out or whatever. So the notion of that, it's such a beautiful way of expressing it really and that really gets to me and uh, the fact that this was even the single pick they're actually putting out something for every man consumption and radio play that uh, really uh, is a, a genuine uh, message and a very personal message um, impresses me still to this day that they went for this song and I think we said it as part of the, the discussion of the, the false fiasco I don't always agree with the single pick. In this case, I 100% agree with the singles pick. It really was a song that uh, could have done great things for the band and should have done great things if uh, if things had gone as planned. I think the plan was sound, the execution was not. And let's not get into that again, but that's just such a freaking shame. So um, let's go to the third verse. Thank you, ma'am, for your time. I'm off now. And then, really the line that strikes me as a little awkward, I might as well do that, because I'm running out of talk. That's, <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah, good. So uh, I don't think that points well back to it, but uh, it's, uh, it's a way to get out of there. And he goes out into the night. And uh, this is where the heartbreak isn't even hidden anymore. He, he gets out of that uh, diner and... Uh, seeks the night really to hide his tearful face and he's saying it outright you know i'm i'm in pain um i could hide it while i talk to that lady perhaps that ripped open stuff i don't always bear my thoughts to someone because i mostly talk to myself but that is um again <laughs> very uh, very touching and uh, you gotta wonder how much Stuart put of himself in this song and that is the part that 
like you said, it's it's kind of difficult to think about, and you don't want to necessarily think of it as an autobiographical song because it's kind of sad. And this is even before the assumed downward spiral with uh, the false fiasco and everything that happened after. This is when the band was sort of a little bit upbeat and trying to put it together and things were looking up and uh, he was getting established in Nashville and he was getting into a new relationship and things were or should have been looking up. And then you write a song like this. But he would have been able to, even if he was happy, I think. I think he could tap into this because he always had a melancholic streak. So um, yeah, you mentioned in the end the um, the low ballad on the highway and the faces in the night that flash by. And, you know, for a lot of people, I got a sense that this he is the face in the night. And uh, I'm not sure where the song leaves this character. And I'm not even going to try to explain it because it's inconclusive. You you mentioned the homeless. Uh, it might also be a person who kind of don't know where he calls home. He might have a hotel room. He might have a place, but it doesn't feel like home. Um Choosing to not look at it from the absolute darkest uh, viewpoint. But it's a little difficult, I must admit. Uh, but still, that's <laughs> that's where the song ends. And if you look at the, the video, that's kind of interesting. Because then uh, the band drives off and he goes to a church. And that's uh, also telling. I don't know how that ties in with the lyrics of the song at all. And maybe we had a discussion of that in the video episode. But I can't remember what we said. So... That's uh, that's where that one leads. So so just to wrap up this one, this this is very successful in creating almost a new sound for the band, but it does remain true to their old one. It's uh, they have a lot of emotional songs in the past. This is this adds to that and it expands it, and it feels strongly like uh, a song the entire band got into and uh, put a lot of stuff into put a lot of themselves into it and you hear it and they're playing everybody's really on key and this was a song that uh, they kept playing in various uh, guises they played it in 25 live bbw uh, those three guys did it and bruce would uh, bring it with him to the cashback club they played a song and also the alarm performed this song with uh, bruce watson guesting on guitar so they would bring it with them and uh, and play it uh, around and uh, also, with uh, we need to mention the live versions where Stewart sang this with uh, Kirsten Adamson. That was quite the moment. Mm, yeah, definitely. And just two other quick things I want to mention about about the song "Fragile Thing" is that um, that I forgot is that uh, in the demo version of the chorus, it constantly ends on a minor chord. For example, when he says, "I'll spend I spend a lot of cold nights missing you," that always ends on this minor chord. But in the studio version, they alternate. Sometimes it ends on a minor chord. Sometimes it ends on a major chord. And I love that. It, it, it kind of gives the song even a little more of a breath of 
of life and if such a thing can be said about fragile thing but it, it kind of takes the song even in a different direction when it ends on that major chord but it still has the haunting plaintive melancholy feel but it it gives it an extra texture i guess i should say and then the final thing is and this might be the only song on the album that has this in fact i think it is but we actually get a few chas from Stuart, believe it or not, in Fragile Thing, there are a, a couple of cha-cha from Stuart. It's very muted. It's very low in the mix. But uh, toward the end, I think we get four of them. A little nod to the past. <laughs> you can't call them karate barks, though. It's more like getting out... Getting out of the couch barks. <laughs> yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's like the old Elvis, fat Elvis barks. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so where do you rank Fragile Thing? This is a thing of beauty. It's my number one. Yeah. It's my number two. And I, I think it's a, a better song in a lot of ways than Perfect World, but Perfect World is my go-to song, followed by this one, I guess. But it's a tough one. All right, so what did I say about this? I didn't have much to say about this in 99. Interesting. It, I said, a great single, a good moody song. So, so many nice touches on this track, from the minimal piano flourishes to the soft vocals of Eddie Reader. A very moving song. Should have been a huge single, too. Great performances from all involved on this one, creating a new sound for the band while remaining true to their old one. So, yeah. Looks like that hasn't changed much over the years. I think we touched all of those bases. I think we did. This is Corey Crowley. A couple of things first. If I had a big country CD for every time I had to explain they were not country... Oh, wait, I do. No, Kenny, not been a fan of Perfect World either, but it is growing on me slightly. And similar to Tom, I saw Damascus and This Blood's For You and picked up on the religious elements. However, the most relatable song to me was Somebody Else. It had been several years since my divorce and remembered walking through the debris of cardboard. Although I'd made it past the pain and now had a happy life with a new wife and kids, thoughts of family and friends saying how I seemed like a different person during my first marriage, but I was back to the person they knew before. So to me it was a fitting postscript that I had been somebody else and keeping that body was a complete and final shedding of the other person I had been. On a lighter note, I was able to grow a flower in the desert. My 28-year-old daughter actually said she liked my favorite big country song, Kiss the Girl Goodbye. How this came about was even more unexpected. Neither daughter wanted to hear big country as kids. In the past few months, my oldest daughter living in New York City asked me to put together an 80s playlist so she could listen on her subway commute. The music that I played while driving them around as kids. With nearly 300 songs, I slipped in In a Big Country, Fields of Fire, and One Great Thing. Hey, they were 80s hits. It wasn't until one of her co-workers was playing music that my daughter thought, I know this song. And she knew the next one too. My daughter asked her co-worker, Are you playing Big Country? Yes, the co-worker had discovered them on Spotify. My daughter described me as a Big Country super fan, had my name in the albums, I had done podcasts for them, and she would return with lots of information tomorrow. So I sent pictures of my CD, vinyl, and DVD collections 
Tour t-shirts, the Infamous Got Podcast t-shirt, the Great Divide Podcast link on JFNG, and a screenshot of all the big country groups I belong to on Facebook, as well as pictures of me with the band members on the 2013 tour. Lastly, I followed it up by Kiss the Girl Goodbye, to which the seeds sown so long ago grew a flower in the desert at long last. slipped and fell um right we'll start with the, the demo we do have a demo version for this uh, one uh, that was recorded relatively early the second driving to damascus demo session in stansbridge march 1998 uh, they did six songs there of which this and grace ended up on the album and this was early enough that it was one of the songs we got from the lemon tree gig so we knew this quite a bit ahead of time uh, from uh, when the album came so um not necessarily the earliest written, but amongst the first demoed tracks that ended up on the album. So uh, the song itself is a pretty basic song for Big Country. Uh, this was never going to be like a epic, stellar, huge Big Country song, but it's a decent representative of the 90s hard-rocking Big Country type of songs, where this album has uh, some of them, not as many as the previous couple albums, but it has a fast rocker in perfect world. And precedent is not really that fast, but it, it really does build some intensity. And as we will look at, especially the build-up in the chorus is pretty neat when we get into that. But I'll start with the, the lyrics. This is um, a fascinating song for many reasons. And I think this uh, song falls into the style of lyric writing, where he is trying to get a larger point across by naming a number of examples. And we have already talked about this many times for the 90s albums. Uh, what are you working for? Long Way Home, All Go Together. And all of these songs have the random examples, usually of things going wrong. That, <laughs> that points to a larger issue. And the sum of all these problems will paint an overall picture of something that the song is meant to address. And this song falls into the same approach, but there is a huge difference in how it goes about it, where instead of dedicating a verse, for example, to each of the various issues, in this song, each line is about something different. It feeds us examples of random trivia, and it does it on speed. There really is an onslaught of information, just one line more ridiculous than the other, mixed in with things that seem more normal. But in some it all just becomes a flow of information that makes no sense. And if, if we go down the song, just the first verse alone, most of this stuff is just ridiculous. They found an alien baby in a Russian wood A man in the Delta named Johnny B. Good A two-headed cow and a fish that walks A vampire lover and a monkey that talks A boy with wings Nice, that's hot, and a star told us all about 
you look down and you see alien babies, you see two-headed cows, a fish that walks, a vampire lover, a monkey that talks, a boy with wings and eyes that's hot. All of this is rubbish. It's not even news. It's ridiculous sensationalism. And compared with all of that, uh, a story about a guy who happens to have the same name as a well-known rock and roll song from the 50s, Johnny Be Good, that's actually high news compared with anything else, or at least it's something feasible or possible that it could happen. And the last line in the first verse is really the only realistic one of this, which is a sports star caught taking a substance he shouldn't have and uh, has an apologetic interview. That happens all the time. <laughs> so that's actually the one thing that, that we could see. And uh, I'm kind of thinking Oprah here. These people like to go on shows like Oprah where they can apologize and improve their personal brand again. <laughs> so what you, what you see at this point in the song, it, it really isn't about any of the individual stories that we have been bombarded with in the first verse. It's a song about the bombardment. So Stuart really could have used a number of other examples in there. It's a song about media, and more precisely, how media is spoon-feeding us a constant stream of irrelevancies as news bits. So instead of important news, we get the trivia, we get the silly stuff. Non-essential items of dysfunctionalese, as Ray Davis would say. Um, and the chorus just goes on to sum up more of the same. It's stuff that we would see every day. We get the football results. We have a murder verdict. We have a woman who comes back from the dead, which is more falling into the ridiculous again. And a story about the president who fell. And this is not meant as a political fall or a scandal, which would have been huge news. He literally slipped and fell to the ground, the ultimate non-essential news piece. <laughs> so it's a, it's a perfect example of uh, what he's trying to get across, really. Um, but speaking of that president, whose fall named the song, uh, it's impossible to speak about this song without mentioning what everybody thought about when this song was released back in 1999, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And I'm not going to recap that here. If you're too young to remember or lived under a rock when it happened, look it up. Seriously, I'm not going to talk about that. But um, this, um, a song with that title coming out at that point, the news was dominating. It was all over the place. There was no separating the two. You had to assume, or at least your thought would fall towards that story when you saw that title. Uh, the song is not about that, no matter how much we, we would perhaps think that, or not help ourselves thinking that. Stuart, I am intrigued by the lyrics to the president slipped and fell. Am I reading too much into this, or, or is, it, uh, is it about Clinton and... Um... No, it was actually uh, written before all that scandal broke. The song is just about how... Uh, the media seem to trivialise everything. And, uh, and you're quite uh, right, because it's got everything in here, which yeah. I thought was quite funny. I, I guess it's it's very strange that you wrote it before, because it could really refer to yeah, him, Yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, when we did the Peace in Our Time stuff too. Uh, we, we did the album and, and went out and played in the Soviet Union. And uh, I said to people at the time that that felt from, from talking to people on the streets in Moscow that uh, something had to change, you know, and, and then sure as fate, a year later, the, the wall came down in Berlin and and the 
whole communist regime collapsed. This this scandal was a hot news story in the media throughout the summer of 1998, and Clinton finally admitted the, what had happened on August 17th. Uh, Big Country played the song at the Lemontry on May 25th, which was three months prior to this admission. And the song had already been demoed at Stainsbridge Studio as early as March 98. So does that place the song before? Not really, because news of the scandal broke on the 21st of January 1998. This means that when the song was demoed, there had been just about two months of ongoing speculation about the scandal in the press, with news tidbits coming in all the time. And there could have been elements of that playing on Stewart's mind, but even if there wasn't, uh, and Stewart, as we heard in the interview, said this isn't about that, but with a title like that, and especially given that it was eventually released way after the story was wide open, with hearings and the full hoopla, the title of the song is really loaded. There's no getting around it. So I think very few of us could look at that song title and not think about the Clinton-Lewinsky story, no matter how briefly. And that goes even when we know what the song was about and what it wasn't about. It's just one of those titles that came with a lot of baggage. And to this day, because I lived through the times when this song came out and what was going on, this still is in the back of my head when I see that song title and I can't shed it, I can't separate it. I know it's not about it. I really don't think that often about Clinton Levinsky uh, any longer, but the song title is a reminder. So part of the reason I'm talking about it now is probably therapy, an attempt at getting rid of those associations out of my mind and clear it up and doing <laughs> that by handing them all over to you. So with that done, hopefully this will now help me and best of luck to the rest of you and I can move on. So um Going back into the second verse, it really is an extension of the first with more rapid-fire examples of new trivia. So I'm not going to go into it. I think uh, I see Elvis, and I think this is at least the second album in a row that uh, Stuart name-checks Elvis. He did it on God's Great Mistake, if I'm not mistaken. They found the face of Jesus on an Elvis plate And snow that fell on the sunshine state I'm going to jump to the bridge section, which uh, goes, give me one for the money, give me two for the money, etc. Uh, that's an interesting piece. Give me one for the money. Make it two for the money. Maybe three for the money. You better make it four for the money. I like that he sings it in the lower voice on the album after singing it higher in the demo. That is kind of a, a difference. I'm glad they uh, they changed it. So uh, give it a little bit more sinister or seedy, like he's the guy who cows the money at the back. You know, he's getting all the, the clickbaits for, for the articles out there or selling the stories that pe- the public consume. Um, a little seedier or whatever. And what's interesting to me, though, is after the demo where he sung it up high and the album where he took it down, 
when they went out and played it live, he went high again. So <laughs> I, I, I get that live. It's actually difficult to, to keep it low and intense when you have a large audience. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that one. That's fine. Uh, but also the words in the bridge. They are clearly referencing the opening words of that classic rock and roll standard blue suede shoes by Carl Perkins from 1955. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show. Three to get ready now, go cat go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. So Stuart is making it all about the money, all yeah. the three that counts, and he adds a fourth one for good measure, which uh, Carl Burgess <laughs> didn't have, so he has four for the money. <laughs> so it's a little bit funny, um, yeah, and is. he sums it up with the more I hear, the less I care. In other words, the more crap the media feeds us, the less we care about what they're trying to say. It just becomes an onslaught of trivialities. So it's a, it's a cool little uh, section in the middle. And the, incidentally, this, it strikes me now that the song actually with this refers to at least two 1950s rock and roll songs. Because it also mentions Johnny Be Good, which is a song by Chuck Berry. And here we have the Carl Perkins song. So maybe there's a lot of 50s uh, things in this that I didn't think about before. But, uh, I can't see any others offhand. But uh, the fact that these two are in there is at least interesting. So, yeah, that's uh, that's really the song. It's it's a pretty uh, clear cut what it's about. It's uh, <laughs> clear what it's trying to do. I think it's on point. I think it, it hasn't changed much since uh, 1998 when the song was written. Today, it's even worse in that regard. It's all about, uh, especially now in the internet age, where news is consumed more online and less in papers, it's all about getting people to click the story. And this is kind of interesting for me because my work is at one of those websites that serve these stories, not uh, as an editor or journalism. I work more in the back end on the, uh, the technical setup and those things. But uh, it's, a, it's a discussion you have. Uh, what do you do to, uh, to uh, make sure that you engage your audience and hopefully in a positive manner? And it's an interesting discussion. Some countries are kind of known for going further than other countries. And uh, some journalists in certain countries have a reputation. And uh, it's, um, it's interesting that this song could have been written today and sound exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that he might have changed, he doesn't really talk about the medium or the way the news is served, which is probably more newspaper uh, 20 years ago and more internet now. But uh, the same principles and it's the same message. And you can st still give me one, two, three, four for the money. So uh, musically... The song comes across as one of the rockers on the album. Like I said, it's not a barnstormer. And it probably feels more like a rocker than it actually is because of the album it's on. Because it's a reasonably mid-tempo. If you listen to the verses, it's a mid-tempo, solid rock song. It's clearly guitar-driven. Uh, stands out from a lot of the songs on the album, which uh, take a step away from that. Uh, but it does manage to build. And when the band launch into the chorus, a lot of stuff happens. First of all, someone reconnects Mark's life support system, and he he comes to life. You know, he's, he's the he's the woman who died and came back from hell. Suddenly, he drives into a drum thing out of this world, and he ends the chorus with a kick drum that you wouldn't you wouldn't see it coming when you're in the verses. But then you get into the chorus, and he just launches into it, and it's really quite a climatic uh, chorus. Sports star told us all about why Four goes to 
like Norwegian black metal. <laughs> Believe me, it's not. But uh, it's, uh, it, it really is. Uh, uh, it's, it's two steps up from the rest of the song in intensity. And uh, so even if the song doesn't have a huge tempo, it's not a fast one like Perfect World, but it, uh, it can have intensity even though it's not necessarily the fastest song in the universe. So that, that is kind of cool. And especially live, I would have to say. You actually saw this song live, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. I, I'm i trying to remember if I had heard it before I saw Lemon it live. Tree. Yeah, I guess I did, yeah. I guess I had heard that bootleg before. Yeah, but it, 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 was, very, um, it was very intense live, no doubt yeah. about it. Hearing that double kick that you mentioned especially. Um, yeah, very heavy. Very heavy big country song. It is. Yeah, definitely. Mark is playing all kinds of fills on the drums. There's also... Lots of layers on guitar that add um, a lot of beef to the rhythms, and actually a few lead harmonies on the, when, when you listen in the background there. But uh, the wild man moment of Mark on this album comes in the end of this chorus. So they do calm it down again in the coming verse. They uh, they take it down and it's back to the sort of mid-tempo straight rock and roll song, and then they fire it up again in the chorus and they calm it down again before the bridge with the one two three four for the money. Um, I would say ultimately it it. Um, as much as I love that they fire up, it, it almost becomes a little start-stop. I mean, an, a barnstormer doesn't lead to a start that way. It can build into it. But once it it kicks into the actual intensity, and then drop and build and drop and build, then that's something that it can get, get a little too schizophrenic for my taste, actually. So I, I went back and listened to some of the live version to see if that eliminated this, this little issue. And... Uh, it it kind of does. It's um, because they never calm it quite as much. They can't contain themselves, and I guess that is because live you you would play it more organically. So it 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 doesn't make sense to take it all the way back down as much as they do on the album. So they don't. So you you have a little bit more of an intensity throughout. So this is one that um, gets better live in that regard. And I don't know really how I feel about the voice that doubles the vocals in the verses. It is really sung in a weird key. I get that they were not going for a lovely melodic double vocal here. <laughs> this is definitely done for a, a specific effect. And I guess that effect is there for whatever they were going for. The demo is on the whole quite similar to the album version but there is one huge difference in that the demo is a lot longer and on the album version after the one for the money bridge they enter the chorus again sing it one final time and they end the song there 
Whereas on the demo, after that chorus, they launch into a guitar solo and then do the chorus one more time. And after that, a play out and it ends. So the demo version is almost a full minute longer than the album version. So mm. we are we are robbed of a guitar solo and we are robbed of another repetition of the chorus and the, uh, the end section. So the album version is nearly three minutes. It's 2.58. The demo is 3.49. So that's uh, that's interesting. That takes me to the end of the song, where I, uh, I'm actually curious to see if you feel the same way. But to me, the end of this song sounds like an edit. Uh, the song ends very suddenly. It's kind of unusually abrupt. And it definitely sounds like an edit to me, where they put Stuart singing the word fell on top of it to perhaps mask the edit a bit. Yeah, that's very possible. It, it is. It's. It definitely is a very um, abrupt ending to the song. I always liked it, though. I, I, I can hear how it could sound like an edit, and it very well might have been. It's possible that they recorded the song the way they did uh, for the demo and then changed their mind and said, you know what, let's just end it right here instead of yeah. repeating this again. Personally, I think that was a good thing. I, I don't think the um, the ex- extraneous stuff in the demo adds anything else to the song. I think it makes the song actually more powerful to end the way it does on the studio version. But I think what they wanted to do there is, like you say, really ac- accent that word mm-hmm. fell. And it, but it does, it does almost sound like they take, they just like, take all the music back really quick and it's not a it's not you can it doesn't sound like the musicians are just stopping it sounds like the music exactly. is being cut off so yeah it, it, it could very well be an edit and it probably was um but i for me i think yeah. it works what we are robbed of though is a guitar solo the, the song doesn't have a guitar solo but uh, i i the, to me they i think they keep playing for a while after that point where the album track ends uh, and keep in mind that the demo continues with that guitar solo in the chorus. I think they, they definitely went for that. So that that leads to speculation. If there is an unedited version of the studio recording, which contains that guitar solo and the final chorus, that perhaps, you know, if you shake the right person, it falls out and we can get new big country music. You know what I have to say about that? <laughs> One word. Petition. Yeah, because that works so well. <laughs> that, uh, that's definitely the way to go, sirs. Please release the the extra minute of President slipped and fell, dear Universal. Please, we have to address it to track. I think. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's right, track. 
Mr. Grant. You know, if, if we start uh, addressing track, there's a lot of things we could ask for. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that <laughs> is on true. top of the list, but it's, it would probably make the list. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. I never thought of that before, <laughs> but yeah, maybe there is a longer version of the president's lip to out there. Maybe one day if the super deluxe edition of Driving to Damascus comes out, we will get the unedited version of this song as one of the numerous extras. So um, we can hope. <laughs> but, so that's the end of the song. And um, if I'm going to describe really or summarize how I feel about it, uh, it's a more than a decent uh, rock song on this album. But uh, I think perhaps how I feel about it matches some of how you described uh, somebody else. I think it's a good, reasonably standard rock song played by extraordinary musicians. So from a songwriting perspective, I really can't see it as an extraordinary song playing wise then yes sure you can definitely hear that it's played by the big country members but uh, even so talking about the song itself and from a songwriting perspective it would classify as uh, perhaps one of the more ordinary songs in their arsenal and I, I kind of say that as a huge fan of the 90s rock stuff uh, i usually defend a lot of this but this song i i never sensed as anything but more it sits comfortably as an ordinary song on an album. L less adventurous track, perhaps, uh, is the best way to put it for Big Country. The, the lyrics are fun enough and sometimes clever, but I, um, on this album in particular, they, they are a bit lightweight. But there's nothing wrong with having a lighter moment on this album. Good Lord, especially the, the next two songs we're going to get into after this. <laughs> Maybe this would have been the palette cluster <laughs> after those or between those, because that is... Um, that is um, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that in due course. So, yeah, definitely. Can we just stop here? <laughs> Let's just stop that at the song. That would be nice. There's definitely room for more lightweight points on the album, for sure, especially in that context. So uh, no negative marks against it, but I guess more a lack of uh, something that pushes it way up for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty much in complete agreement with that last couple sentences you said. It's There's nothing, there's nothing about the track that I can really criticize, really. Uh, and yet, for some reason, it, it doesn't it doesn't do much for me. It, it's ranked low for me, and I can't. I mean, I can tell you some things that I don't necessarily love about it, but there's there's nothing that I can point to and say, oh, this is this is not good, or I don't like this. But for some reason, the song, even though all of my instincts tell me I should just really embrace this song and love this song because of so many musical elements, especially, uh, I just never really did. It just kind of. Now, live was a different story because, you know, you're there in the moment and you're hearing all this great playing live and it comes across much better, I think. And on the album, it's it's really well produced. I mean, it's another great example. of Again, I keep going back to this, but I think he's great at this. Rafe McKenna is great at these really heavy, hard, hard edged rock songs that appear on this album. And the guitars especially sound incredible. But I, I will say one one negative about it that I, that's definitely a negative for me is the title. It's and there are a couple examples of this on the songs from the Driving to Damascus era that to me that that are song titles that are kind of awkward sounding. They're they're not easy to say. They don't roll off the tongue. And I, I remember this was one of them. Like the president slipped and fell. It's just a strange title to say, and it's it's hard it's hard to say. Yeah, play the president slipped and fell. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't seem right. And like your spirit to me, when we get to that, that's another kind of an awkward phrase. And then the the other one that I think of a lot is, uh, and I don't even know what the official title of this is because it's gone. It has a couple of different titles. We've got "Sleep There Till Dawn" and then "Sleep Until Dawn." You, you get the feeling that 
even they thought that was a strange title and it doesn't didn't really flow right and they were trying to get it right. So this is another example to me of, of one of those songs. It just has a kind of an odd title that just doesn't feel quite right. It's a little bit awkward. But yeah, I, I'm, I've talked about it on the Buffalo Skinners as we we both did. It, the, this lyrical style from Stewart is not my favorite of his where he just throws out example after example of, of things that aren't very well connected. But I think his choices of of what he throws in there are very interesting. And for example, you get actual uh, important lines that are almost lost within other lines that are about just frivolous things. For example, and you, you brought up the weeping sports star, but it even gets more than that. For example, we in the second verse, they found the face of Jesus on the Elvis plate and snow that fell on the sunshine state. A man at the auto with his 23rd ride A million small investors who were taken for a ride A billion dollar budget for the specially fast And the holy man told us not to have sex Before it goes to He's got like uh, snow that fell on the sunshine stage Jesus on the Elvis plate Man at the altar with his 23rd bride And then right after that A million small investors who were taken for a ride That was a big If, if he's talking about what I kind of remember from that time where literally um, many, many investors were screwed out of their life savings uh, with these bad deals that they, that they were these Ponzi schemes that they took part in. Yeah, that's a real thing that really affects people's lives, but it's sandwiched in there between something that no one cares about, like the, the man at the altar with his 23rd bride. And then after it is a billion dollar budget for the special effects. I mean, I think what he's saying there is, is really smart. And if he was intentionally doing this, because sometimes you can analyze these things so much and you can almost create meaning where they may not have been there in, in the beginning. But I, I'm going to say, I think he did feel this way. Um, I think he's saying here that as he himself mentioned in that interview, there's so much frivolity with the news reporting that we end up losing the important things. And there are some really important things in here. I mean, when we get to the chorus, which I think is a really cool chorus, we've got him talking about um, goals in football. And uh, he's giving a halftime report. And then right after that, the primetime verdict from the murder court. And so we've got something as as frivolous and non-life-changing, well, you know, maybe for some it's non, but I know for some it is life-changing football. <laughs> but as football, sports, and then followed right after by a verdict from a murder court, which is a serious thing, something that is life-changing. And for me, that line always, just as the president slipped and fell, for me also always reverted back to the Clinton thing. This line always reminded me of the O.J. Simpson um, trial because I'm, I'm sure that was watched across the world, but in America that was just – like a reality show. It was a reality show every day watching the O.J. Simpson trial. And when the verdict came back, and I can't remember if it was in prime time or not, it doesn't really matter, but when that verdict came back, I mean, everybody was watching it like they were watching the last episode of their favorite television series that had been running for decades. You know, So I, I'm sure that must have been in his mind when he wrote that line. I find that interesting about these lyrics, how we, we've got so many frivolous things. Most of them are very frivolous. But there are some things that are thrown in there that are not frivolous, that are that are very important, that, that are things that can affect people's lives and then have affected people's lives in legitimate ways. And they're being lost in this huge um, 
amount of just nonsensical stories. So I think that's a really prescient point that he had. And like you said, it, the lyrics still stand completely today, even more so. I mean, it's it's gotten even worse um, as we see so many clickbait articles yeah. and just things that are just so worthless. And important stories do seem to you, you become immune to them to some degree because there's so much crap, you know, 90% of it is crap. And then the good stories that really are important sort of get lost in the shuffle. So, yeah. And actually if they, if you saw a story where they said they found an alien baby in a Russian wood, would you click it? <laughs> yeah, I would click that if it was of true. Of course you'd click it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's rubbish. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's proving our point and we're falling into it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, you've gone through all the lyrics, and there's really no reason to go through them much more except for um, you know, what I just said. I, I guess the only other thing I would add, and you've covered it as well, is that one line, the more I hear, the less I care. I think that sums up the entire song. That is yeah. the, the main line of the whole song. The more I hear, the less I care. And I think that's what he's saying. You know, The more of this crap we hear, the less we care about the serious stuff. And I think we see that even more today. So it's a, it's a smart song. It's a smart song lyrically more than I gave it credit for probably initially for the first few years. Um, so I, I respect that about it. Um, uh, musically. Yeah. I mean, my gosh, in a way, this song reminds me a little bit of the song normal in that that song is so short and like a, like a short burst of intensity, but nowhere near as intense as this song, but it's, it's still interesting. And these, these, sub three minute songs from big country are so rare that it's, that it's really interesting to hear another one here yeah, and even um, if they need to chop it uh, right before the three mark to make it yeah yeah they just barely got it in with that <laughs> with that chop um like i said before i i like the edits when i went back and listened to the demos it did it just didn't feel right to me and and i'm i'm certainly on record saying that i want more solos sometimes in these songs on this album but I don't think it. I, I think it works better for this one. Um, I just like how it comes in and it does its it does its business. And it leaves. You know, it's like it's another <laughs> one of those tunes. It just breaks in breaks in the window and does what it's going to do, and it takes off. And then you're you're in the, kind of in a daze after it's left. So it doesn't wear out its welcome, that's for sure. But I think the the fifty songs that you mentioned are really interesting, especially because probably one of the things that takes me out of the song a little bit is not only does it name check Johnny B. Good, but the, the verse musically is Johnny B. Good. I mean, it's the, 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 it's the same chord progression as John, not only Johnny B. Good, but countless other 1950s blues songs. I mean, that's the standard chord progression, the one, four, five, or what I think, or whatever they call it, um, chord progression. I mean, it's just the most simplistic standard blues chord progression, um, that you're going to find in many, 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 many songs. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! And I know why they did it here. It's it's it kind of gives the song 
that musical tie-in to some of the lyrics, and I think it's another example of some of the Nashville influences that, and the country influences that Stewart was having at the time, and he put it in here. And it works. It works great. But just blues, big, big country doing blues stuff, just, and I say it over and over again, but it just never has, has done much for me. And what's interesting is that the chorus is so different from that. The chorus is the opposite of that. The chorus to me feels like almost something that could have come from Steeltown in a way. I mean, believe it or not, I do hear like Steeltown-esque sounds on this song, especially in that chorus. Just the, the chord progressions, the, the intensity of the guitars, the distorted nature of the guitars, and even Stewart singing on, on the chorus kind of reminds me of that old school Stewart vocal sound. And then we get that coupled with the the blues chord progression. And again, it, it works. It works completely well. Just like I said about somebody else, it works. It's well written. It's well played. I definitely hear more big country in this song than I do in somebody else. But it, it ultimately still has that same effect on me when all is said and done. It just kind of sits there. I'll listen to it. I'll think this is good, but it just doesn't mean a whole lot to me. When it first came out, I remember thinking like, there's so many other songs you could have chosen than this one. So many great B-sides that you could have put on here uh, yeah. and, and rendered, made this one a B-side. But I kind of get the feeling that maybe they were thinking, you know, we, we just got to put something here to lighten things up just a little bit. So let me read my brief paragraph from what I wrote in 1999. This one's taken a lot of flack, but I rather enjoy it. It's nothing stellar for big country, but it's a nice, short, potent little number. It really smokes live, too, I can tell you that. I don't quite understand the significance of a lot of the references made here lyrically, but that's okay. I do get the overall feeling of the song, which seems to show a general disgust for a constant bombardment of trivial news items. I also like the Give Me One, Two, Three, Four for the Money Bridge. A more bluesy, hard rock sound on this one, but I think it works. So... You would think that I would give this a higher mark, but my rating is number 10. Wow. That's... Uh... And I'm a little surprised at that even now, <laughs> but it's number 10. <laughs> so do you think I have you beat or equal or even one less? Uh, I'm going to think you might be up another notch or two. I'm actually down a notch to 11. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I have to say it's uh, it's closer to the ones above it than the one below it. Yeah. 9, 10, 11 to me are really the same number. And those three songs I really thought about a lot. I think the thing that puts this on 11 ahead of them, I'll, I'll talk more about that when I get to my 10 and 9, is that those other songs are more personal songs that uh, – perhaps has a little bit more significance musically it's uh it is what it is it's 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 decent it doesn't have the high points to raise it yeah all right good so yeah well, the, the the president slipped and fell slipped and fell <laughs> yeah and if we were talking about the the uh bill clinton being the definite reference or the inspiration for that we'd have to come up with different verbs than slipped and fell <laughs> the president's beeped and beep <laughs> Oh man! You used to dream of the days when uh, when a sex scandal was the worst that that could happen. Yeah, seriously, right? That, that those were the good old days when there were sex scandals <laughs> and and lines like, uh, "It depends on what the definition of is is." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> still one of the most insane lines I've ever heard. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing is about that title, and I was look, going back to look 
to see if something like this happened at the time, and I was surprised that it didn't. But there are moments where presidents have literally slipped and fallen or presidential candidates while they were walking to a campaign spot or coming off an airplane. And uh, I remember President Ford here in America was very, very known for being clumsy and falling a lot. They used to spoof that on Saturday Night Live at the time. So and, and that would always make the news. I remember that anytime the president would slip and fall off of something or, you know, tumble, it would always be it would always lead the news. Hey, the president fell down today. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was it was a literal thing. But um, yeah, it is a genuine example. It was. Which makes it all the more sad. Yes, very much so. Very much so. But uh, all right. speaking of sad, <laughs> it's yeah, time to uh, to to look the devil in the eye and dissect devil in the eye. Just a couple thoughts on the driving to Damascus. One, I couldn't wait to get the import CD, which I bought in digipack form. And unfortunately, that was the CD where every track was about 10 seconds off at the start. And I didn't notice it until the second or third time through the record because I just played it through. And then when I wanted to skip to a certain track after a couple times through, it kept missing the start of the track. I couldn't understand it. It drove me nuts. I hope I wasn't the only one that had that issue. Uh, two, I really love the record, but uh, I missed out on all the bonus stuff from the website because it was a time in my life when times were really tight, starting a family, just bought a home, etc. So I missed out on all that bonus stuff. Sounds super disappointing that I missed it, but it it sounds like I missed some good stuff. And uh, I'll just never forget the first time I heard Devil in the Eye, and I thought, wow, that song is so profound about problems with substances. And then to have what happened happen just broke my heart. I could not believe it. Every time I listen to that record... I go to that song first. It just tears me up. But have fun. Be careful. Uh, this is Bill in Illinois, and thanks for the podcast. Uh, stay alive. All right, this is a tough one. This is a very tough one. This this is probably going to be the toughest one to talk about for me, certainly. Devil in the Eye, very interesting song. I'm going to have to deal with this song the way we dealt with the fragile thing, but but all at once. You know, we we dealt with the folds fiasco first, and then later we talked about the song and the musical aspects of the song, and tried to keep our discussion limited to that when we got there. This song is another one of those songs that has even more baggage to it and even more intense, sad, devastatingly painful baggage to it. So I've got to talk about that too. And that, that obviously affects how I feel about the song and probably affects how everyone out there feels about the song, but it would be unfair to the song too, to only talk about it through that viewpoint. So I'm going to try to do both here. First off, I, I think it's important to 
remind ourselves of some things that were happening back around this time and driving to Damascus with Stuart. I remember that that's about the time that he opened up the Tappy Tories bar. I remember there was a lot of talk about this on the email lists, on uh, the groups that we were on at the time, and Stewart's alcoholism was known. We knew that he was dealing, had dealt with it. Um, I don't think we knew that it was as much that it was a continuing, ongoing struggle as it was. I think for many of us, we thought it was maybe in the past. But I do remember when he opened that bar, a lot of people thought, is this a good idea? Is this a good idea for Stewart to be opening a bar and surrounding himself with alcohol when he's got a problem with alcohol? And uh, do you remember those discussions happening? Yes, definitely. Uh, It was, um, I remember especially a picture of a proud Stewart smiling uh, next to the tap in the bar. And I think everybody saw that picture, and uh, I just said, "This, this, no good will come of this." Mm. Yep, no I, good. I mean, of all the businesses he could have started, it's. Um, I know that pubs is a cultural thing in Britain that both you and I probably don't relate to, like Br- British people do. But uh, even so, I think certain things should be avoided when you have issues. Yeah, I agree, and I remember thinking that at the time too. Like, uh, I think for me, it was. I had more confidence that he would be okay, but I just, but I also had that red flag that went up. Like this is this is maybe not the best thing, but at the same time, I didn't I didn't know how intense his problem was. You know, I don't think any of us did. You know, he never gave the impression that he was someone dealing with alcoholism and and someone who was going to be falling down drunk or or blackout drunk. So, I, I agree that it was probably not the best thing, and it was a strange choice, but. At the same time, I just thought, well, he he seems to think he can deal with it, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But this was actually printed in Country Club. There was a, in one of the issues they actually addressed this when it happened. Jan, who printed the the club at the time, the magazine at the time, the editor, she brought this up and that people were wondering about it. And Stewart actually addressed it. He didn't go into much depth about it, but he did say this, which was interesting. He said, "I used to drink to excess and not really through choice." I went to AA and found out who I really was, and I'm still learning about me now. So that was Stewart's response to the concerns that him having a pub was not necessarily the best choice. And to be fair, we don't know if he if he ended up falling off the wagon while he was at that pub. I mean, for all we know, he may not have ever taken a sip of it while he was there. But you know it certainly couldn't have helped i wouldn't i would think it it couldn't have been a good thing as far as uh being surrounded by it even more but yeah anyway so that line by stewart i think is something you got to remember to frame the context of this song i used to drink to excess and not really through choice i went to aa and found out who i really was and i'm still learning about me now so the first thing to look at it in this song is the title devil in the eye and I've been guilty of this as well. It's like kind of not really paying much attention to what that title might mean. But when you look at that phrase, and especially the larger phrase in the song, look the devil in the eye, what does that mean? Usually when we say we're going to look the devil in the eye, it's always followed by and do something. We're going to look the devil in the eye and go for it. Or we're going to look the devil in the eye and get on that airplane or look the devil in the eye and or and jump out of that airplane. Basically, it it's like dealing with one of your deepest fears or something that you're going to have trouble accomplishing or doing or something that you're scared of. But when you look the devil in the eye, that's that kind of comes back to to courage, developing courage 
and being able to look the devil in the eye and do something, being able to, to get your courage together and go against this thing that you're afraid of. And I kind of feel like that's what Stuart is doing in this song because, I mean, this song is, is kind of like Stuart giving the complete description of his murderer to the police. You know, if like if this was someone who had, who had been the victim of a, of a murder, it's almost like, you know, in hindsight, it's almost like their spirit or their ghost giving a complete description of what their murderer was like, what they looked like, every every bit of their personality that, that they had. I mean, he paints it out so clearly and so perfectly and so precisely in this case the dangers of alcohol and what alcohol can can do to someone and what alcohol addiction can do to someone and he he draws a picture that is so in your face it's so vivid it's so descriptive and there's nothing left to question after this and it it makes the lyrics even that much more difficult to hear and and the song to listen to these days because you see now, I mean, you see that Stuart knew exactly what this was doing to him. He knew every in and out of the problem. He knew he knew the disease. He knew what it would do. He knew the cravings. He knew how they would come, what they would cause him to do. And yet he still succumbed to this. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly saying Stuart here, but let's, let's remind ourselves that this was another co-write with Ray Davies. So... Even though I think I think this song had to be lyrically at least much more driven by Stewart than it was Ray versus somebody else, I'm sure Ray had a hand in it. And I went back and looked at Ray Davies, and I thought, well, I wonder wonder if Ray Davies ever had an issue with alcohol. And so I went back and, and looked at that. And there is a kink song called Alcohol, and uh, it's got lines like "Oh, demon alcohol, sad memories I cannot recall. Who thought I would fall a slave to demon alcohol?" And then I read some stuff about Ray Davies' life, and I think he had more of a problem with probably drugs and pills than he did alcohol. But he does have this quote where he says, "Not many people know this, but I was living alone in 2000, 2001. I was living in an isolated place and drinking heavily." I watched the same film over and over again for three weeks. It comforted me because I knew every line. It's a foreign movie. Obviously, this is after the song was written. But we, we get the feeling that even he might have had his issues with alcohol in the past, at least enough to know the dangers of it and what it could I do to someone. This, by the way. Yeah, I, f- I figured you would. So uh, that'll that'll be like a little teaser for whatever you're going to bring <laughs> bring up. But But yeah, so the point of that is that there is a Ray Davies influence in the song that we got to remember too, but we're we're obviously going to look at Stewart throughout this, and as well we should. And it, it would be my guess that Stewart probably wrote most of this lyric lyrically. And if he didn't write even the lines that he might not have written, the way that he sings this song is is so intense. Maybe maybe one of the most intense uh, singing vocal performances on the album. But I'll get to that in a second. Let me let me just take a, a brief turn to the to the music. I think musically, what threw me about this song when I first heard it was this is a kink song to me. I mean, even more so than somebody else. I could hear the kinks influence in somebody else, but it really, really comes through in this tune. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing as far as a, a song, because I quite like the kinks and I think they've got you know Ray Davies especially a great songwriter and he comes up with great lines great riffs 
and this is another one. I mean, this is a really cool riff that opens this song. It's got a sinister almost feel to it, uh, but in a in a way that you're almost attracted to the thing that you're being warned about. And there, there's there's a certain yeah, I hate to use this word to describe music, but I'll use it here because it kind of fits. There's there's kind of like a sexiness to the music and to the to the guitar lines, and so and that really fits the lyrics because even though Stewart is telling you that this thing is going to kill you, he still is painting it as something that is hard to resist. You know, very very difficult to resist, and he and he gives it the uh, a, a gender. He makes it a woman. So you've got these these lines guitar wise that kind of weave and snake through the song and very, very kink sounding to me. And, you know, to me, not a hardly a big country moment in sight on this song, which is probably one of the reasons that it was harder for me to, to embrace at first. But that riff that kind of guides us through the song is very, very effective. And it's a very cool Ray Davies type kinks type of, of, catchy little guitar riff the one other part musically that i think of, of is the very interesting about this song though and the one that i maybe would see stewart probably writing is the chorus has no time for modesty doesn't care for honesty deals and broken promises will spare you with a lie It's a very, very strange chorus musically. Almost, it's almost a dissonant-sounding chorus. It's got even at times maybe like a, I don't know, like a Middle Eastern sound to it, perhaps. But it's it's very unexpected after the after the guitar parts in the verses. It's a very unexpected chorus. It's not a catchy type of chorus, really. It's not like a melodic type of chorus. But there's something about it that works for me. It's got like a it's got an uneasiness about it, which again works perfectly for the song lyrically. There's an unease about that chorus. It like doesn't really resolve, and some of the notes just don't seem quite right. Um, Stewart is playing a chord, but he's also playing open strings that, that go underneath the chord progression. It just gives this kind of dissonant feel to the chorus. It's a really, really strange chorus, and I, I like that. I like the fact that it's so strange. The other really cool thing musically that stands out to me is Mark Brzecki. He's he's got he plays a very standard, probably for him, simple as could be part in this song, but he, he adds he adds some just awesome little flourishes. And he got he has his root these really cool little hi hat parts that accent the verse um lines musically just perfectly. If I could tell this to you, would you believe it was true? You might just laugh I so I think the other standout point of this song is is the bridge. It's it's a really strange time for the bridge. Another strange thing about this song, you know, most most songs will go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. The bridge won't come in until usually after the second chorus. That's a typical way to, to structure a song. But this song has a verse, a chorus, and then a bridge immediately. And so you don't even really know what the chorus is really at this point. And you only know because it goes back and repeats it again later. And the part that it repeats is usually going to be the chorus. 
the song almost has like a David Lynchian type of feel for structure. It, he, they do things here that, that you would not expect a songwriter to do, but it works. It, it all adds to the feel of not just it, this, this sense of doom to the song, but also a sense that you want to follow that doom. You want to go toward it and see what's going to happen. And that's kind of the, the feeling that you get. But let, let's talk about that bridge for a second. Man, what a, what a bridge this is as far as just the sonics of it. So, again, we've got Stuart painting a very well-known picture for him. He knows what this is like. He knows what alcohol is going to do for you. He knows what you're going to, what kind of person you're going to become. And even at the time, I, I got the feeling that he had been this person. He had, he had been there. He had seen this happen personally to himself. But it's not just the lyrics here. It's the, it's the way that they're presented, and it's the way the vocal is presented. It's, it's done with this distorted type of effect on his voice and you what i really think is so powerful about it is that you can hear these breaths that stewart takes in between each line so he'll say like uh you'll be the class fool and then you'll hear <gasps> as he gets ready to say the next line and and they don't they don't cut that out you know often when you're recording vocals you'll you'll cut those little things out but they leave them in here and they should it was, it was an obvious choice because it adds so much to the power of and intensity of that performance. And you can really just hear Stewart singing his heart out on this bridge, especially. I mean, you really feel like he is feeling this. I think that bridge is just a really, really powerful moment in the song. And it's, it's jarring and it's, it's, it's hard to listen to, especially in hindsight. You'll hear that phrase a lot in hindsight, but even at the time it was hard to listen to. It's just a everything comes together in that bridge because again he's painting the painting the picture perfectly of what alcohol can do, but he's but Rafe McKenna the producers the way Stewart performs they're also painting that picture from a from an emotional standpoint from the sonics that you're hearing and something we never heard from Big Country before is this kind of vocal treatment and this sort of uh, just very modern sounding vocal sound and and the distorted nature of the lyrics and that kind of thing going back to the title again you know Svein brought up uh, a good point in one of our past discussions about about the word winter being used a lot throughout uh, big country's lyric writing and how that was a, a metaphor for Stewart's depression which i think is a, a very insightful comment and very true devil we don't get it nearly as much as winter obviously but when we talked about Beat the Devil on No Place Like Home. I remember us talking about this possibly being a song where he's he's talking about fighting his alcohol cravings and his Yeah. And, I had that on my list too. Yeah, yeah. And I you know, I think that's I think that is a great way to interpret that song and it makes perfect sense. You know, beat the devil. I know I've got to beat the devil tonight. The the cravings are here. Um I know that I want a drink so bad. And here comes the devil, and I got to beat the devil. And so here again, we have the devil as the metaphor 
for alcohol. And again, he's got to beat the devil. He's got to look the devil in the eye and he's got to resist the devil because he knows. He knows what the devil is trying to do. He knows what it's going to try to make him do. And he knows what it's going to turn him into if he lets it. And so it's interesting that this is the same type of approach that we get on that song. And and it kind of lets you in on the fact that this must have been something that Stuart was always dealing with. And I'm not, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a drinker. I've never been a drinker. I've tried it a few times. I've never liked, I've just never enjoyed it. I've never liked the taste of alcohol. I've never liked the taste of beer. Um, it's not like a moral thing for me not drinking. I just literally have never enjoyed drinking. I've never liked it. I've been drunk, you know, a handful of times and I've never enjoyed really the aftermath. So it's just never been an issue for me. And I'm thankfully that's the case. So I can't understand uh, completely at all what, what that pull must be like. Although I would say I have addictions to other things that are much less uh, damaging to (laughs) one's life, but I can, you know, I know the feeling of being drawn to something that you feel like you need, but I'm not going to pretend that I understand the draw of, uh, of alcohol when you physically feel like you've got to have it and you crave it physically and mentally. I've talked about a good friend of mine who took his life shortly after Stuart did. And, and this was his problem. He, he was depressed and he was an alcoholic. So I watched it personally um, happen in his life. I, I was friends with him in college and I saw how he was a drinker in college to a fairly heavy degree, but not enough to really destroy his life. But I saw how as things progressed with him and his life difficulties got worse and worse, he kept turning back to drink and he kept uh, going back to it to deal with his problems, even though obviously they don't deal with anything. It turns you into this character that is being portrayed here. And then eventually like the song um, alcohol that the kinks wrote, you end up completely gone in this gutter and then, you know, your life is eventually gone. So I saw that happen to him. So, that that's this song is just so hard to wrap your head around in a lot of ways with all of that because you see that Stuart knew exactly exactly what this was going to do to him. He knew exactly what was going to happen if he if he gave in. He was not oblivious to the dangers of alcohol. He had dealt with them before. He knew that it could happen again. He'd been to AA. He saw that these things could happen. I don't think he was resigned to his fate necessarily when he wrote this song. He just, he knew what could happen and he knew what he was dealing with. Here we've got this woman, you know, this beautiful woman. And we get a sense that she's beautiful. You know, take a little care when you put your lips to her long, cool neck. And this line simple. And I feel like I've heard it before, but it's still, it's an incredible line. One kiss will be too much. A hundred, not enough. Treat her with respect. So you get the sense of this, this gorgeous woman, who is also a powerful woman who could do things to you that you may not like. And if you, you, you're going to, you're going to kiss her. You want to kiss her if she'll let you, but just one will be too much. And because as soon as you do, you'll never be satisfied with just one. You have to, you have to keep going. But this other line that just is haunting. Now, if I could tell this to you, would you believe it was true? You might just laugh. I expect, you know, man, I mean, if, if you're anyone, if you're anyone who deals with alcohol problems, and this this will be my public service announcement, there's so many there's so many ways you can go, obviously. But just if you're at a point where it's not out of control yet, and you're just thinking about, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this to this extent, 
you know, just look at some of these lines. I mean, it's all laid out for you. You know, there's there's Stuart almost as if from beyond saying like, if I could tell this to you, would you believe what I'm saying is true, or do you, what do you think? Oh, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah, the the chorus that has no time for modesty, doesn't care for honesty, deals in broken promises. Uh, you know, we all know that from an addict's behavior. You know, once they get to a certain point, they will make any promise they can to get what they want, which is more alcohol or money to buy alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. And they're not modest anymore. They don't care what they look like. They don't care what their situation is. They, they will lie to their family. They will lie to their best friend to get what they need. And I also always like the line, we'll spell you with her lies, because I I really like the, the word spell being used as a verb there. This person will spell you with her lies. The other verse at the end, the, the final verse, which I think is, is a very frightening one, is... You will be dazzled by the picture she will paint, color she will bring. And feel so safe and warm, far away from harm, wrapped up in her wings. And slowly drift to the day, letting it all slip away, without a care in the world. And wake up in a cold sweat, screaming for her touch to ease your trouble soon. What powerful, powerful, powerful lyrics to describe addiction. And, you know, th this song is just so devastatingly powerful. Yes, the power is much greater now in hindsight because we know what happened with Stuart. If Stuart had, if Stuart had beaten it again and recovered and become sober and was still with us and making great music, this song might be, might be a footnote. It might be an afterthought. It probably would be a song that we wouldn't really think about too often. Because it really isn't a, a big country song, really. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like traditional big country. It doesn't sound like even the more big country-esque songs on this album. To me, it's the, it's the song that sounds the furthest from what we would expect from big country musically. But because of what happened to Stuart, the song takes on an entirely new meaning. And I don't, I don't know what it takes to save someone who is an alcoholic or who is dealing with addiction because I've seen so many um, whether personally or from afar who go through exactly what Stuart's gone through here they know everything but they still fall to the disease but I, I do know some who've recovered so I don't know what it takes I don't know if a song could could be the spark that makes someone decide to turn their life around but if it could this song you know maybe it could still have that kind of life in it because you know, if there's anyone who's not too far gone where they can still change things, here's a song that maybe can inspire you to to maybe put into motion what whatever you need to do to get on the right path because you know, look what this did. Look what this did to the to our hero, to the guy that we loved, you know, so much and continue to love. Look what it did to him. And he knew it. He knew it and he he could tell you what it was going to do to him, and it did do exactly that. So you know, I guess what I'm trying to say here is my only hope for this song is that it doesn't completely end in this devastating, depressing piece of music and lyrics uh, that just sit there. And whenever we look back at it, remind us of the horrible you know, way that Stewart's life ended. 
because we know that alcohol too is not necessarily the problem. It's usually there to mask bigger problems like depression and, and these other things that people deal with. And that's what being turned to. But you know, my hope is that maybe, maybe this song by bringing it out again and talking about it. And if anyone, you know, listens to it again, you know, maybe, maybe someone can be helped by the lyrics and slapped in the face enough to, to want to, change things you know that, that's the only thing i could i could hope for about this song that maybe even all these years after stewart is gone um maybe something he wrote can have that continue to have that effect on someone so you know devil in the eye it, there's there's so many different ways to look at it as we've seen here um strictly from a songwriting standpoint i think it's a very well written song it's a it's a really good song it's a good rock and roll song with really insightful lyrics. It's not what I want from Big Country. It's not what I turned to for Big Country. When I first heard it on the album, I was disappointed in it because I didn't want songs like this. I wanted the Big Country to return that I knew and loved, that that was prevalent on some of the other previous songs. So we've got that box. On the other side, we've got what it means to Stewart's legacy and what it meant to his life. And so there are two really different ways you got to look at it. But... uh yeah, it's a, a tough song, and that's about that's about all I can say about it. Sure, there's nothing more. <laughs> yeah, what was that? Like an hour? <laughs> Who knows? But uh, <laughs> it was uh, very, uh, very meaningful and insightful, and definitely nothing I can add to a lot of that. And I'm glad that this worked out so that you went first, because, like you said, this is such a tough song to talk about. It's impossible to separate the song from what happened to Stuart. And um, I uh, I would prefer to take it at song value, but it's impossible. But uh, the easy bit is, of course, to uh, talk about the demo background. So let's do that, because we do have a demo for this album. It was recorded very late in the day at the seventh and final demo sessions for the album that we have demos from at House in the Woods in December 1998. So that was approximately three months before they went into the studio to record the actual album. Uh, they made definite versions of four songs during these uh, sessions, which includes both of the Ray Davis songs, plus uh, Trouble the Waters and the title track. And this song is on Rarities 7, track 10 on CD2, so you can go and listen to it there. It's a very interesting demo, not too different from the album version. And that was pretty much the easy bit. All the rest is kind of tough to talk about, but I will be shorter because we can't take two hour-long diatribes about this song. The song certainly deserves it in some way, but there, there's no point. I'm not going to sit and repeat what you said, and you said it well. Musically, this is the most unique song on the album. Really, it sounds different than, than anything else, not just on this album, but really most of what they ever did. And that includes, like you mentioned, the groove of the song being very slinky and moving along seductively to match the lyrics, because that's how the song opens with a bit of go on, have a little taste, have a little, you know, and um, goes a little bit different as you get into it, perhaps, but uh, it it matches it. It, it matches the allure of, uh, of what at least one of the several voices in the song uh, is talking about because I, I imagine almost like this classic image of having an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the next and you're almost having a discussion with yourself where sometimes you hear like the suggestive like one voice will say you're the guy in control 
and the other one will say you actually will wake up in a hole and you have this going back and forth and it's um so so that image just came to me um way back and i've always kind of thought of this song as that but it's a bit more multifaceted than, than just that it's really everything sometimes he screams out of warning sometimes he describes what it is more objectively it's the entire really emotional wheel everything is covered and um, i think that's really the the full tale that that's how you can sort of say someone lived it and um, perhaps this is the moment where i can talk a bit more to the ray davis connection to these type of lyrics because he um he has um he has he has had battles with alcohol in his life, but unlike Stuart, he overcame it. But at the same time, he he lived it. But you know, every person's story is different, and his um, experience with alcohol would be very different than Stuart's. I I I, I never saw him as a full fledged alcoholist, and he he never struggled with it all his life. The same way you you saw Stuart did, he went through periods and overcame it and then he would go back to being a social drinker but without the issues so clearly perhaps that wasn't alcoholism but uh, when he divorced his first wife in the early 70s he went through three or four years where he kind of sort of the wilderness years where the albums were odd they released some really strange albums the first half of the 70s if you're a king's fan you know what i mean Uh, interesting stuff but it's kind of like big country would go through this phase where they made just songs like Devil in the Eye or some, some really weird stuff for the band. But it, they, they, they had some good stuff there too. But a lot of it came out of those wilderness years of race. And he went through everything, like going on stage out of his mind, retiring publicly from the band, living with his brother Dave Davis for extended periods to just get rest and overcome things, nervous breakdowns, and uh, just a full thing and then emerging on the other side like this slim fit gentleman who was in complete control of all aspects of his life and has really been it since uh some episodes aside like the ones you mentioned uh always little things like that ray is a very peculiar fellow in a lot of ways but the, the song you mentioned alcohol that is inspired by his father the davis family had a father who uh would go to the pub like a lot of uh people of his generation would do and come home late at night, marry. And um, he was the kind of guy who would entertain at parties. And Ray would do this stunt during the shows. He wrote alcohol and he performed it live. And he would do this dance where he was balancing a pint on his head. And that was a routine that his father would do when he came home from the pub early and he would do this thing and continue the party at home. Lots of people. Um, and Ray remembers it as happy times. Like it wasn't like this drunk father came home and terrorized them with drunken parties. It was more like a happy time. But he would do this, um, like the whole family was together and all having fun. And he would balance his pint on his head. So it's kind of fun <laughs> that his son took after him in that regard, but also had some years with issues. But uh, besides putting it in that song, Alcohol, from Muscle Hillbillies in 1971, he would put things in all the time, which sort of um, reflects that culture. There's an album called Soap Opera, which is a concept album where a super famous star tries to assume the life of an ordinary 
human being and uh, goes to do an office job. So he's working nine to five and he thinks, oh my God, how can people live like this? So his only way to cope with that is to go straight to the pub after work. And there's a lot of songs that goes into that. Like when work is over, you have this whole thing. Um, drinking helps us to forget what we are. We leave the office and walk straight to the bar. Don't stop to think. Have another drink. And it's almost like a rousing sort of pub rump type songs. He would put that in there. And uh, knowing his background, you kind of know where it came from. And uh, so when the time came that he wrote this song with uh, Stuart, uh, he would be able to formulize it. But I think, and this is interesting to me, when they sat down to write songs for this album, I would have loved to have heard the conversation that led to them selecting this particular topic. Oh man, me too. That is the bit about this song that if, if I can unravel one mystery, that would be it. And um, I'm sure they must have had a lot of heart to heart. You know, Ray is all about songwriting and okay, what is the background for this song? What are we trying to say? What have you experienced? What can you put into the song? And putting in observations and personal experience and all that stuff. I'm sure he could help Stuart formalize and phrase and and be more an editor because I see a lot of this coming from Stuart possibly, but I sense a lot of Ray style more than Ray content, if that makes sense, that he helped him shape the song and uh, let Stuart speak more straight from the heart. I, I do think that this was a song that Ray had a large hand in the music with input from Stuart and Stuart had a large hand in the lyrics with input from Ray. So um, that's just an assumption. Makes sense to me. We don't know. But uh, be that as it may. Uh, in some ways, and this will counter some of what I said, in some ways, this is the easiest song on the entire album to dissect. But it's also the hardest. Mm -hmm. uh, because we know, we know Stuart's battle with alcohol. We know it killed him in the end. And here we are talking about this song that he wrote that deals with the temptation of alcohol. A song that likens a bottle of drink to a sexy woman. And how about how about that approach? Um, to be honest, I, I don't think he fools anyone. I think everybody thinks of this as the alcohol song. I almost have to remind myself that the notion that it could be a woman was ever in the mix. And at this point, we know, of course. But the, I think even back then, we looked at it and what, what, what? And oh, yeah. Of course it is. And <laughs> it's, a, it's not well camouflaged, but they keep at it till the very end, referring to it as her and, and going forward. And um, that's more a writing exercise um, or a style they have chosen. Um, like I said, I have to remind myself that a woman was ever in the mix. Uh, but really... Um, it's an uncomfortable song to dissect, knowing that this was a battle that Stuart lost in the end. But you could also see it as calling it out in a way, at which you sort of covered very nicely, that it's acknowledging the issue, and it's warning others and explaining what it feels like, and looking at it more perhaps as a warning or whatever. Because the song does go into both sides, and that comes back to the angel on one shoulder and devil on the other. They take turns talking about how great you feel indulging, but also how awful you feel the next morning. And both sides are part of an honest retelling of the situation. Because you can't be honest as an alcoholic without saying how great you actually feel for those few moments, but also how fake those, those feelings are in the end and how it doesn't really save anything. 
so you cover that that well i think uh, i'm not going to rehash that um you mentioned the line that seemed familiar to you one kiss will be too much a hundred not enough that is actually an almost verbatim quote from a movie a movie called the, the lost weekend starring ray milland mm. which is about one man's terrifying battle with the bottle and he says basically the quote in the movie is once too many and a hundred's not enough <laughs> wow and, I, and that became uh, uh sort of a, a thing that sat in popular culture at the time and given stewart's uh, you know penchant for watching old movies and uh, the whole wild in my heart aspect you know perhaps he got it from there perhaps raided um both of those guys were well read and well watched, so to speak. So they, um, it's not a, it's not unthinkable that that comes from that movie. Uh, and you mentioned the Beat the Devil. I see exactly the same. Uh, we don't have too many examples of songs about this topic. I think. I think these are the two. And it's interesting that both of them mentions the devil, and even in the title. So um, I think it's very likely that Stewart named this song and came up with that particular angle. Yeah, I think since so uh, yeah, the, the red thread is just too strong going back. So yeah, you covered the lyrics well. I I, I think they're very tough to talk about. So like I said, I'm I'm glad it worked out that you spoke about it uh, first. Um, and uh, music too. It's uh, <laughs> we feel very similar. This is a very quirky song. Uh, I have to say, there's not a whole lot of Kinks songs that sounds like this. <laughs> if if this song was on a Kinks album. I know Kinks fans would say, "Wow, this is a little bit unusual for for Ray." <laughs> so, um, but but I, I I can I see I see what you mean, and uh, it's less unthinkable I think on a Kinks album than it ends up being on a big country album. Yeah, uh, and especially you know this album has a few more straight ahead rock numbers. Uh, this is clearly not one of them. <laughs> it's uh, very different. You notice that shuffling, slinky groove. Uh, there's one difference they did in the demo that I actually like a little better than the album version, and that's the way the intro riff is played. In the demo, it's picked very staccato, where the last note in each line of the, the melody that they play is left open. And I think that gives a, a great effect so that uh, that would have been uh, cool to keep, I think. But other than that, the demo was made quite late in the game. So it's relatively close to the album version in tempo and arrangement and style. And even to the point that the demo even includes that distortion you mentioned in the voice on the You'll Be the Class Fool bridge. And I was wondering if this was meant to symbolize the voice of the devil on your shoulder or alcohol during you in. Uh, but that doesn't really work out because uh, in addition to saying how you'll be the guy in control, it also speaks about the ground opening up. So it's, the voice covers all of those things. So I guess it's more a dramatic effect yeah. in the end. And one thing that always hit me about that lyric is like, if he's already in a hole, hasn't the ground already opened up beneath him? <laughs> you start over with every new uh, every day. <laughs> right, yeah. You do. It's, it's one day at a time, you know, both on the wagon and off the wagon. So, uh, no, I think it fits better as a stern warning, really, of what might happen. So it's underlined by using that thing. Uh, I almost see this guy yelling at you through a megaphone, like, <laughs> damn it, listen to me. Right, right. Listen to what I'm screaming at you here. So, um, 
yeah, that's that's the song. It's um, it's a tough song to talk about musically. I, you know, for once, I must agree with you. I don't often agree with you that the the whole this doesn't sound like big country thing. But this this gets a little too far out, even for me, um, as someone who who readily embraced so much of the nineties. This is it's an interesting song, and definitely not bad. And that's why it's uh, it's less of a problem. You know, it would be worse if it was not to the quality that it should be. It, clearly, it, there is quality here. It's just uh, very different. But I think for me, the thing that makes this such a hard song to listen to are the lyrics. And um, it's really a song I, I don't want to go to and listen to and get down uh, into the mire that this song could drag me. So that um, when we look at the album and it, it, sort of in the context of ranking all the songs, that would pull it down. And it's perhaps an unfair reason to pull down a song. But ultimately, it's all about how much I like them, how much I want to play them. And this is one that I, as good as it is, and I, I will acknowledge the quality anytime, but it's not a song I'd really like to go to. So it, it sits in that category of uh, of songs I mentioned, ranked nine through eleven, they really are all on the one spot, and this would fall in that group. And for me, uh, I put it in the middle there at ten. Ten, okay, that makes sense. Probably would be there for me back then. Uh, let me let me read my comment. This is more of an interesting one because this this one was written before Stewart died. This comment, so you got to remember this is a this is a review of the song before Stewart passed away, uh. and, and I wrote. I really didn't like this one at first. Then I realized it was about alcohol abuse, and I began to come around. I think I was put off initially by how vastly different this song sounds than anything I've ever heard by Big Country, including the way Stewart sings. Also, you can really detect the Ray Davies influence on this one. The Kinks could have made a smash out of this, probably. I don't know about that, but it's a straight-ahead rock number with some really nice drumming by Mark and a very catchy feel all around. It is not what, what one might expect from Big Country, but once you get over that, and I know it's admittedly hard, the song may be much more appreciated for the interesting piece of work that it is. So my rating after all these years might have gone up a little bit, um, but it's number seven. That's quite respectable. Yeah. As especially for a song that doesn't sound like what you're looking for in big country. I know. I know. <laughs> I also think we'd be remiss if, we, if I didn't read this one quote here because we talked about, man, I wonder what Stuart and Ray Davies talked about when they were together talking about this song. Yeah. Ray, Ray did deliver a tribute to Stuart shortly after he died. So since we've just finished the Ray Davies portion of this deep dive, let's read this tribute from Ray. He says, uh, I only met Stuart recently when Big Country played with me at Glastonbury. He was a handsome lad with a sense of humor, which is important if you support Dunfermline Athletic Soccer Club. <laughs> <laughs> we last met in New York when he was putting new material together. He was proud of his homeland and his family, and I am sure they will always be proud of him. He wanted to write heroic music and came off like a heroic figure. We talked more about football than music, and he was a big league player in every sense. So really nice tribute from Ray. So, you know, you get the feeling that he may not have known him that deeply, but uh, enough to to see the, the important parts of Stuart. And, you know, he certainly got the love of his homeland, heroic music and sense of humor. He got that. To me, it feels more like the kind of thing you say about people who have died and you don't want to drag up that, yeah, we wrote a song about alcohol. Right. Is that you know, I'm not surprised that wasn't mentioned. Oh, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
But it's uh, definitely well put. Ray is a man of, uh, you know, clever with words. Well, man, we looked the devil in the eye. We came out on the other side. I have to admit, I'm glad to be out on the other side at this point. Um, even though things don't get that much easier. I don't lyrically. think, I don't think, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet. No. Okay, so we aren't out of the woods yet, but we are finally finished episode 73. Wow, that was a long one in more ways than one, a long and difficult one. Some tough songs there to talk about, but uh, we got through it, and we just have a few more songs left to go. So hopefully you guys will be with us for the duration of this ride as we continue driving to Damascus, deep diving to Damascus, however you want to put it. Um, Anyway, we'll be back with episode 74 soon. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Let us know what you think. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to JF&G. Thanks to Svine. And we will see you next time on the Great Divide Podcast. All right. <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna mute so I can uh, chew my crackers while you talk. Proceed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was that? That was I took up the mic away from my mouth to cough, and you should appreciate that instead of laughing at it, or I'll cough at you next time. No, I heard it. I heard another. I heard another sound that didn't sound like it came from your uh, from your vocal cords. Yeah, this. <laughs> <laughs> That is me pulling up the mic and pulling it down again. (laughs) That is some mic.